Monday morning to you all, 538 The Time on Talk Radio 790 KABC Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre. Good, Good morning, morning, T-Ray. Good morning, Counselor. Great to see you. And you. My goodness, uh, lots to talk oh my about gosh, today. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's it's huge. I mean, you know, obviously the Republican and Democratic primaries are, are really heating up. We've got some OJ drama that oh, uh, people, people have got to focus on, of course. Uh, but we want to kick off the show uh, with Professor Chiron Skinner. She is a professor at uh, Carnegie Mellon University, and uh, she has written extensively on the Reagans. And, of course, uh, Nancy Reagan passed away over the weekend at age 94. Professor Skinner, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Gosh, uh, this uh, is, it's a really an important moment in American political history because uh, she wasn't just, uh, just any first lady. Uh, it, it, she, was, she was controversial. Uh, she was kind of polarizing. Some people said, you know, she's just a superficial shopper, overprotective, the adoring gaze. But other people, I think, recognize that probably without Nancy Reagan, we would never have had a Governor Reagan. We would never have had a President Reagan. We would never have had the success uh, toppling communism in the in the 80s. So a, a really important figure on the American scene. And I know you've had a unique uh, look because of your academic and, and uh, literary work. Tell us uh, your background and your take on her. Well, um, you're right. Um, Nancy Reagan, along with her husband, um, were, um, had a huge impact on the 20th century. And they were just when you study them, they were so relevant to almost every decade um, after um, um, the 1950s in American political life. And in Nancy's case, I think what has been missed is that in the post-presidency years, um, she devoted herself um, not only to nonstop care for her husband um, as he suffered Alzheimer's in their home, but also to preserving and expanding his legacy. And then when he died, she even increased her efforts. So she had an incredibly full life. And let me tell you a little bit about what I mean. Um, in the mid-'90s, I was a postdoctoral fellow at UCLA, recent, recently having finished my Ph.D. at Harvard in political science, and I wrote Nancy Reagan asking for access to her husband's private papers. Um, she didn't know me. I'd never met her. Um, but she talked to George Shultz, former Secretary of State, and Bud McFarland, former National Security Advisor, and they said, give Kyron a chance. And she gave me almost unfettered access to her wow. husband's l- private l- Let me jump in and, and remind people we are talking with Professor uh, Kyron Skinner, and uh, she's uh, director of the Institute for Politics and Strategy uh, at uh, CMU's Dietrich College of Humanities. And you wrote Reagan, A Life in Letters, and it was a look at more than 70 years of Reagan's life through, through personal correspondence. So based on what you said and, and how I just described you, you, you had pretty amazing access. I'm curious, how is it that Schultz and McFarland uh, knew you to say to Nancy, yeah, she's good, you, you want to go with her? I had done the research for George Schultz's memoirs um, and, um, and just literally met Bud McFarland in a Washington, D.C. bookstore and cornered him and told him about my project and met with him later. And so the reason I'm telling you this story is that I'm, was, I was an improbable person to have access to Reagan's papers, but I did. And what was striking to me is that Nancy Reagan did not have a political litmus test. Um, you know, I was a young African-American woman. 
um, wasn't a registered Republican. She just wanted historians and scholars to um, delve into the Reagan story and talk about his role in the end of the Cold War. It was phenomenal. And you're right, Reagan, A Life in Letters, and another book, Reagan in His Own Hand, that I co-authored with Martin and Annalise Anderson, became New York Times bestsellers and began the revision of Reagan as someone who was much more engaged in policy and who wrote letters, speeches, political tracts more than anyone had had ever thought. So her role in shaping the Reagan legacy by giving access um, to the papers and really to the Reagan story was, I think, unprecedented. Now, when people think about Nancy Reagan, as I started to mention, you know, think about you know, buying China for the White House and, and shopping the, you know, the fancy designer uh, clothing, uh, people ridiculed her endlessly for the adoring gaze as she would cast in the direction of her husband. Uh, you obviously got into it in, in a much deeper way as opposed to a lot of the superficial criticisms and so on. What did you take away from uh, your study in terms of what Nancy Reagan's role was in her, in her husband's public life? It was just, it was very much the opposite of the, um, that impression that you just described in real time. And I think over the years, um, there has been a reassessment of Nancy, not just her husband. But when you think about what she was doing as the First Lady, she set a relatively high bar for the First Ladies that have come after her. In addition to really doing an excellent job on the ceremonial side that you've just mentioned, um, you know, having a White House that, you know, had culture and the arts, um, and she was always beautifully dressed, um, she was involved deeply in policy issues that she cared about. Foster grandparents, for example, um, the, um, the Just Say No campaign, um, which has been somewhat ridiculed, but no one has figured out the drug problem in America. Um, Nancy Reagan did her part. She went to the United Nations on October 25, 1988, and gave a speech about drug abuse in the U.S. And it was interesting because she didn't finger foreign governments in Latin America. She said the problem starts at home with our legislators, our mayors, our judges, what goes on on the street, men on Wall Street buying drugs. It, and many of our staff members said you cannot give this speech, um, you know, claiming that America is partly responsible. She prevailed and did it anyway, and it was very well received. All right. Well, Professor Chiron Skinner, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, go get Reagan a life in letters, and I appreciate you helping us uh, remember Nancy Reagan. You have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thanks a lot. 544 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks and for Doug McIntyre. Stay with us. Donald Trump's hair, Donald Trump's hair. A girl could get lost in there, way up in there, in Donald Trump's hair. 5.15 in the morning, this Monday morning, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. So T-Ray, uh... Donald keeps dominating the oh news cycle. Will it ever end? You know, um, you know, a little glimmer of hope, maybe, for uh, Rubio. He picks up the uh, Puerto Rico uh, primary over the weekend. And the thing he was crowing about, and maybe he has a right to do it, is he was pointing out this was kind of an open primary deal where anybody could vote, and he just, right. he just rolled. And, you know, something uh, up in the 70s for him. But it's interesting to me that Donald Trump is saying... Oh, oh, you know, let, let's just have it you and me, uh, Ted, you know, mano a mano, which is counterintuitive. Because, How so? Because Trump's path to victory 
is everybody else is attacking him, but there's no one single unified field theory about who should go against him. And so right. what happens is he would want, I would think, right up until Cleveland, the convention in the summer, to have Cruz and Rubio battling it out and Kasich sort of nattering around. But no, he's saying, I want just Ted. Now, what's up with that? I think what's up, up with it is that Trump knows Rubio is ultimately his strongest competition because whereas you Cruz, think so? yeah, whereas Cruz has done better than Rubio, you can't get past the creep factor. Most people think Rubio, <laughs> uh, uh, Cruz, Cruz is, is creepy, creepy. <laughs> yeah, and he's got his hardcore Tea Partiers, sure, and so that's why he's do, been doing a little better than Rubio on the slams. I mean, Jeb Bush spent millions just attacking Rubio. We really got personal between them. So I think that's what's going on. I think Rubio, if you look at the national polls, he generally is the guy who does best against Hillary. Well, and. and and um, speaking of the insults and everything, one of the things that Trump says about Cruz is actually true, and that is he is not well-liked in Washington. Yeah, no, he absolutely. He made no friends with the government shutdown effort. Yeah, so so that's what's going on, I think, in terms of strategy with mm-hmm. Trump. But you can't even get to the strategy or the substance because there's, there's just so much fun. Let, let, let's go to uh, uh, Jim Acosta and, and Trump, this whole business about uh, his hands. The other night at the Fox News debate, you seemed to talk about you know the size of your manhood, if, if I may put it that way, sir. <laughs> sir, I... Sir, some of the some people of the, are booing man. with reporters. Look, I know what's that about? Marco brought it up. Isn't that not presidential? No, sir? no, no. To I, engage I didn't bring it up. Excuse me. Somebody else said Donald Trump has small hands. So I said, small hands. These guys know. I hit a ball 280 yards. Stand up, my club champion. Stand up. Do I hit the ball good? Do I hit it long? Is Trump strong? Oh my God. Huh? So I just simply held up the hands. These are very strong hands, and they're fairly large, actually. But you know what? I will be the most presidential candidate in history other than Honest Abe Lincoln. He was very tough to beat, okay? But when I get attacked by these people at a low level, I have to attack back. I can't stand there. Some people say... You're above it. You should stand there. That's not me. I can't do that. There's got to be a therapist in the what? White House when he gets there. I know, and he keeps saying that he's gonna he's gonna start acting presidential. Well, when? Like soon? Well, maybe he's thinking of Richard Nixon because he's a pathological liar. He's now denying that really he, there were any references to his manhood. He says that he's now saying it's all about the hands. I mean. First, Megyn Kelly, the business about the bleeding, uh-huh. he's lying. Then there's Carly Fiorina, the business about, you know, well, would you look at that face? Oh, I wasn't talking about her physical face. I was talking about her persona. You know, a second lie. Then the the disabled guy, the reporter with cerebral palsy, and he's, you know, flailing his arms around. And then he lies and he says, oh, I never met the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I was just gesturing. Well, David and now Duke. This. I don't know David Duke. I yeah. don't know what, what white supremacists, what groups, what are you talking about? Exactly right. I don't know anything about any white supremacists. Yeah, but you know what? It doesn't seem to matter because he's right? just still riding real high. You know, he high. did he did backtrack over the weekend, and one of the things that got him in a little bit of trouble during the debate, and that is his comment that the military will do anything he tells them to once he's commander in chief. Mm-hmm. And people came out and said, "Um, that, that's against inter- international law. You, well, there you, again, you won't be able to do that." It's kind of like Nixon because you know, in which when Nixon gave his interviews to David Frost after he resigned, he tried to push the idea that no. It wasn't illegal because if the president does it, it's not illegal. I, I think we could be uh, talking. Uh, that's Trump's approach. Mm. Five fifty four. The time. Talk radio seven ninety K A B C. When we come back, you won't believe an ironic elephant charge. So stay tuned for that. It's McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer.
6.07 the time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre today. Only Doug will be back tomorrow. And I hope you're having a good one. I hope you stay dry out there. We're hearing uh, reports about uh, some pretty ugly weather. So uh, stay safe. And you know what happens when a couple of drops hit the... Uh, the freeways, everybody goes nuts. All hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose. Stormwatch 2016. <laughs> hey, the playoffs are in sight. The division-leading LA Kings are gunning for a third Stanley Cup in five years as they take on Vancouver tonight at 7. Former King Daryl Evans and John Rosen describe all the action. That's Kings and Canucks tonight at 7 on the home of the Kings, 790-K-A-B-C. And hey, if you'd like to check out my website, it's my name, royaloaks.com, R-O-Y-A-L-O-A-K-E-S.com. And we got some fun um, aspects to it now. Uh, we've been putting up podcasts, and the latest one is all about OJ. So if you if you got a little uh, OJ hangover from uh, 20 <laughs> years ago and are interested in this story, and of course we're going to be talking about it T-Ray, uh, later in the morning uh, about the knife, uh, the bloody knife, and we'll see if there's anything to that. But anyway, check it out, royaloaks.com, and check out the podcast. Right now we are delighted to be joined by Karen uh, Kaifa. And uh, Kafa, excuse me, uh, she was at the debate in Flint, Michigan. And uh, Karen, we're really looking forward to your impressions of uh, the big clash uh, between Hillary and uh, Bernie there in Michigan. Uh, how are you this morning? Good morning, Royal. Yeah, it was quite a night. Perhaps the testiest debate that we've seen between these two candidates in this 2016 race. Don't you race. think? I mean, yeah. the way they went at yeah. it was just... And isn't it interesting that we're commenting at the irony? I mean, it's like knife fights going on <laughs> over on the Republican side. And here, oh, fiddlesticks. And we say, oh, my, <laughs> oh gosh, my gosh, one of them said fiddlesticks. I mean, when, when, when the big news is Bernie said, excuse me, I'm talking. I mean, that happens at the dinner table every night, okay? No, people don't make fun of the other family members' private parts and so on. So tell us, what were your impressions about this clash? Yeah, you know, uh, the economy obviously took center stage in this debate, being that we were here in Michigan. And uh, Flint obviously is in the spotlight because of the water crisis. But Flint and other cities in Michigan had economic crises far before the water became a problem in Flint. The departure of those auto industry jobs. It's, it's so hard to see a lot of what's happening here in Michigan. And so that gave way to these two candidates really highlighting the differences in their economic messages. This is something they've been doing out there on the campaign trail, uh, but uh, but really a, a solid audience for this kind of debate. And they got into a lot. They, they squabbled over trade. They squabbled over the auto bailout. They swallowed, uh, squabbled over a, a lot of very important issues, not just to Michigan voters tomorrow when they weigh in in the primary, but a lot of voters across the Midwestern state. Karen, have you sorted out this whole issue of who voted for what in the auto bailout? Because they went at it for quite a while over that. Yeah, they did, Harry. This was uh, something that this was a new line of attack that Hillary Clinton brought out. Uh, probably targeting a Michigan audience specifically, uh, knowing what the auto industry has meant uh, to this state. And so uh, there was a lot of sorting out and sorting out what uh, what votes belonged really to the overall uh, bailout of Wall Street and the economy in that very uh, kind of confusing, fast-moving time in 2008 and in 2009. But this was uh, this was a line that Hillary Clinton went for. And, and, and without people kind of digging into the nuances of it, which Bernie Sanders tried to do, uh, saying that the, the money uh, was, was going different places, he didn't want to bail out Wall Street, 
um, he, uh, they, they kind of went back and forth as to what that vote actually meant. But Hillary Clinton did land that line, uh, turning his back on the auto industry. You were either for saving the auto industry or against it. Uh, and she said she voted to save it, and he didn't, and kind of left him scrambling to explain it. So the, the line that may stick in voters' head is that, okay, Bernie Sanders voted against that auto industry bailout yeah. Uh, yeah. without kind of getting into the, the deeper back and forth of just what a lot of those votes meant. You know, I think you're absolutely right. We're talking uh, with Karen Kaifa, a reporter. I, I think Hillary had a big win there because, you know, when you talk about nuances, it's the old saying, if you, in politics, if you have to explain, you lose. She was able to establish that, you know, here on the, the home court uh, where the auto industry is king, he's explaining, oh, well, the bailout was for rich people you know, I couldn't I couldn't go along with that. And she's four square f- for the crowd. Let's listen to a little of the sound of, of the uh, debate the other night. I voted to save the auto industry. He voted against the money that ended up saving the auto industry. Oh. I think that is a pretty big difference. Well, I, if you are talking about the Wall Street bailout, where some of your friends destroyed this economy, you know, through, excuse me, I'm talking. Let him sprung. If you're going to talk, tell the whole story, uh, Senator Let Sanders. me tell my story, you tell yours. I will. Well, you know, I think if, 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 Larry, if Larry David had been there instead, maybe he could have done a little better against her. So, Karen, should we be worried about Hillary's laryngitis? I mean, it seems to be getting a little worse. You know what I yeah, think? Yeah. You know what I think her problem is? Every time the crowd roars when she says something, then she feels like she has to out yell the crowd. Have you noticed know, that? It's yes. really irritating. Exactly. Why don't you just keep talking? Get a little closer to the mic. But anyway, do people talk about the fact that she's uh, uh, smells a little sm- uh, uh, not smell smoky, but sounds like, like she's a, a smoker? There was a lot of kind of elevating voices above the crowd last night. There was a lot more crowd engagement. Again, not as much as the Republican debate on Thursday night, but certainly more than I think these Democrats are are used to in these debates, which have been rather sedate up until now. Uh, But they had a very uh, engaged crowd. You even heard Anderson Cooper in his questioning kind of raising his voice just a little bit. Uh, But Hillary Clinton has been known. We've seen this in her campaign rallies on the campaign trail to – to raise her voice a little bit, gets a little scratchy and hoarse. We've seen Marco Rubio go through the same thing over the last few days or so. It's just one of those things that happens out there on the campaign trail, especially when you're doing as much talking as these guys are these days. Karen, you, you really should have been here in the studio a minute ago when I... You know, I made one of my rare mistakes, and I said, Hillary smells. You should have seen the look <laughs> T-Ray gave me. She looked at me like, oh, my God, he's lost it. He's talking about how Hillary smells? It was just a little mistake, T-Ray, okay? I know you news people have to get everything exactly right. Uh, Karen, what about going forward? I mean, this business of the debates turning into, like, Roman circuses, you know, with the gladiators. In the old days, you know, Kennedy, Nixon, you know, even into the 80s and 90s, they didn't have a huge screaming, uh, cheering crowd out for blood. I wonder if they ought to go back to that because it seems like it's bringing out the worst in people. Yeah, this is a question that got raised, especially in that debate in Detroit on Thursday night with the Republicans. Just the behavior of some of the people in the crowd. You could see them. It was almost like there were some people seated behind the moderators. It was almost like when you're watching a baseball game, you got those people seated right behind home plate, and they're trying to wave to mom or, like, call someone on their cell phone. That's kind of the atmosphere that it took on, and it was very raucous, and it was very loud. Um, and so on the one hand, you want to applaud people for being engaged in the political debate and showing that kind of spirit for the candidate they are supporting. But at the same time, you're right. Do you lose something? Do you lose time 
uh, in stopping for the applause? Do you lose an opportunity? Do you miss the rhythm, for example, in that auto bailout uh, line of questioning? Do you lose the rhythm? Did Bernie Sanders maybe have to stop for that applause line and maybe what he was saying got lost in it? So uh, it's great to have people excited about the process, but at the same time, you do want to hear the nuances of the debate. We're talking with reporter uh, Karen Kafish. She was there at the uh, Flint debate uh, between Hillary and Bernie uh, over the weekend. Karen, I, I guess people see this clash between Hillary and Bernie, and, and most people say, well, you know, it, it's fun and interesting, but it's really a foregone conclusion, barring some wacky, you know, indictment or something. Um, but I guess people look at it in two ways. One, it could get her battle tested. I mean, she kind of needs to get up for this and get into a, a groove so that she'll be at peak performance against the Republican. On the other hand, inevitably, when you've got a challenge, you you have to you run to the left. And so she has been running to the left for months, sending a consistent progressive message to, to out-progressive Bernie. And I guess that's going to give the Republicans a lot of sound bites. I mean, not that Donald Trump hasn't given her sound bites about David Duke and so on, but, but I wonder if this whole debate process is going to be a net negative for her because of the ammunition she may be giving to the GOP. I think you're going to see that on both sides and in both contests. Whatever right. the outcome of the Republican contest is, there is certainly a lot there that the Democrats will be able to point to. And then you're going to get the same on this side as well. I wonder if we would look at it differently if it were not Hillary Clinton, if it were another Democrat that maybe we were talking about. You know, I mean, Hillary Clinton's been in the public eye uh, for so long and, and has had these debates so many times and went through this in 2008, really, with Barack Obama in that protracted primary fight that they had. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this all turns out. It's been kind of ebbing and flowing, just when she'll be able to pivot toward the general election. You know, kind of after I won New Hampshire, there was a lot of concern, and then she had the narrow win in Nevada. The big win in South Carolina and really started turning her fire toward Donald Trump, less toward Bernie Sanders. Super Tuesday, same thing in her remarks, really looking toward Donald Trump. But now we have this series of contests over the weekend where Bernie Sanders is still in this, and Bernie Sanders is still winning in some states. He picked up three over the weekend. So uh, she kind of has to go back toward attacking Bernie Sanders. So yeah. when she can really focus on the general election, uh, she's not there yet. She's not there yet, and that campaign is really waiting for that moment to happen. Well, it's getting fascinating on both sides, because you know, when you look over the weekend, uh, Cruz uh, picked up a couple, Kansas and Maine. Trump won two, Louisiana and Kentucky. As you say, Bernie won a few. Hillary won one in Louisiana. Uh, you, you've got Marco Rubio really proud of the fact that he just blew him away in, in Puerto Rico. But to me, one of the most interesting aspects of the last few days was Mitt Romney coming out, blasting Trump, and essentially teeing himself up as an alternative candidate at the Cleveland Convention for the Republicans. And although he was on the, the Sunday shows, you know, Chris Wallace on Fox asked um, Romney over the weekend, now, you know, you made this speech, are you willing to commit 100% that you uh, wouldn't, wouldn't run for president? And he wouldn't. I mean, he was very diplomatic and smart about it, but basically said, oh, I know it's a 100% chance that one of these guys is running, but he wouldn't take himself out of the running. Obviously, he wants to show up at a brokered convention and have people turn to him because they don't want Trump and they don't think that the other guys can win. So, I mean, if the Republican game plan for the establishment is to keep Trump below 50 percent of delegates going into Cleveland, it seems like that's a distinct possibility. I think it'd be the first time since 1952 that a person wasn't uh, nominated on the very first ballot on either party. Yeah, it's something that obviously there's so many different scenarios at play. And we've kind of seen 
you know, uh, this, this tug of war between establishment and anti-establishment candidates, establishment and anti-establishment movement, and, and Romney getting in there last Thursday and saying his piece was just the latest twist and turn in all of that. Uh, this has really been a very long battle for the, the soul of the Republican Party, really. How will they move forward? What is the party that they want to be? Uh, and this is something that they really hope to avoid. After they came out of 2012 and kind of a bruising primary battle, they reconfigured the primary calendar to kind of set things up, to set the table that they would not have this kind of battle. And now we're talking about a primary fight, a fight to the convention. We're talking about a primary fight that's going to go through states into May and to June. Uh, and there's so many different scenarios on the table right now. Like you said, Marco Rubio hanging in there, Ted Cruz showing a lot of life over the weekend, uh, and then on the heels of uh, the, the states that Donald Trump has amassed as well. So uh, still a very fluid situation. I think we'll get a few more clues next week when we have the Florida primary, the Ohio primary, these winner-take-all contests on the Republican side. No, it's going to be a big, big step because of the Rubio-Florida connection. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. We're not going to get any clues as to who the nominee will be, I don't think, but it'll take us a step closer, I think, to how the party is going to proceed and which direction they're going to take. And, you know, to me, it's intriguing that Trump is coming out and saying that really Marco ought to quit because uh, Trump really just wants to take Ted on one on one. And it seems so counterintuitive because the path to Trump's victory has for a long time appeared to be the fact that he's the leader and everybody else is scrambling for second place and nobody is emerging as a legitimate challenger. So you would think he would want it to be fractured on the other side. And yet... It, to me, it's a signal that he secretly is really worried about Rubio more than anybody else. Hmm. National polls show often that Rubio does, be, does better against Hillary than anyone else. So it may be that uh, Trump has read the handwriting on the wall, and he thinks most folks think uh, Cruz is uh, creepy, and he'd like to have him as a sole opponent. Yeah, he's got, obviously he's looking at the poll numbers. And when you look at those general election poll numbers in a general election matchup, it is usually Marco Rubio who performs best against Hillary Clinton. So uh, that's probably a factor. And then also, you know, we have that uh, ongoing bromance between Trump and Cruz that went <laughs> south, like, really fast. Really fast. Mm -hmm. Remember that? Remember when we used to talk about that? Remember all the alliances we used to have on that Republican stage? We talked about Trump and Carson and Trump and Cruz. And, yep. and to see how the field has fractured now, it's just... Well, and, you know, when you think line. about it, and I'm not sure if this is the correct uh, term, because Hillary and Bernie are, are different genders. So I, I wouldn't say it's a bromance. But in the first Democratic debate, when he, when Bernie said, I'm tired of hearing about your damn emails, and everybody said, excuse me, Bernie, you got basically no chance to win. The one thing you could use against is her email is issue. the email, and you, you know, violated federal law, you might be indicted, and he's tossing it out the window. And so I think there was kind of a bromance there, but it, it probably is a little bit off. Let's hear a little bit more of the clash between Hillary and Bernie from over the weekend. I said, let the billionaires themselves bail out Wall Street. Shouldn't be the middle class of this country. Okay. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, can I finish? You'll have your turn. See, I mean, there's a little clash there. Karen, from being there at the debate, did you get a sense that maybe the genteel aspect of the Hillary-Bernie clash is sort of evaporating and it's going to be more bare knuckles from here on in? I think that we're going to start to see a little bit more of that. Again, nothing like we're seeing on the Republican side, but Hillary Clinton right now is looking to nail this thing down. She wants to move toward the general election. And Bernie Sanders wants to stay in it. His campaign's argument is the more people who hear his message, 
the more uh, appeal he has. He just had a, a severe disadvantage, his campaign says, in everybody knowing who Hillary Clinton is and maybe not necessarily knowing who Bernie Sanders is. And so Bernie Sanders trying to hang on and stay in this race and pick up delegates wherever he can. And Hillary Clinton wants this thing to be over. She wants to pivot toward the general election and start to move on. Yeah, because, because the deeper you get into this calendar, the more people start making those comparisons to 2008 again. And that's when it gets very tricky. Yeah, because because before last night, you know, the, the debate obviously between her and Sanders, but before last night, she'd been focusing more on Trump than on Sanders. Now you're absolutely right. Hey, Karen Kafa, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your thoughts on this. All right, guys. Thanks so much. All right. Mm-hmm. Take care. 623 The Time. Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Talk Radio 790 KBC. Dependable traffic. Here's Bill Thomas. Donald Trump's head. Donald Trump's head. 638 The Time. Oh, Talk Radio so 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this rainy Monday morning. So, yeah, Donald Trump is uh, is the news in so many ways, but uh, you're going to love this this angle, T-Ray. Hmm. Um, people are actually visiting shrinks because there's, uh, they there's, think there's a psychological... Wrong with them ca- be- they think there's something wrong with them. They think old, there's something wrong with themselves because they like Trump, or they think there's something wrong with them because they don't like Trump and everybody else does. Yeah, I think it's that they have anxiety over the idea of a Trump administration, yeah. and they're they're mentally disturbed because of it. Anxiety, depression, people... Remember in the old days, like, with a Kennedy, people would hate Kennedy. I'm going to move to Australia oh, if please. that guy... W- well, that's what people are talking about. But to help us sort this out, this is the good news. We have Dr. Jeff Gardair. He is a psychologist. Uh, he is at uh, Dr. Jeff Gardair, G-A-R-D-E-R-E dot com. Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you to you both. Uh, good morning, Royal. I would think... Dr. Gardere, people would wait at least to the convention before <laughs> visiting a psychologist, therapist, psychiatrist, and yet it's a thing? The Trump anxiety Seriously. is for real? Well, I, yeah, there is uh, anxiety out there, and it's because of something called cognitive dissonance. Uh, the people who uh, love uh, Trump also seem to think that maybe he is a bit of a bully uh, and can be sort of dictatorial. Uh, the people who hate him uh, also kind of like him, too, because they're used to seeing him on The Apprentice. And this is the power of reality TV uh, in that we are in the minds of people who are showing us their lives on a weekly basis, sometimes on a daily basis when we're watching those reruns. So folks out there really are divided about Donald Trump. Well, that's interesting, you know, because you obviously, being a psychologist, have drilled down a little in a more sophisticated way. Because when I heard the story that, you know, there's this thing of Donald Trump anxiety, I was just thinking, well, people are really freaked out about the idea of what might it be like if the Donald were the president. And right. so I'm going to go talk through with the therapist. But when you say cognitive dissonance, that's interesting because, I mean, I've always thought of that concept as you really like somebody, and all of a sudden, out of the mouth of the person you like comes something really weird, you know, opposite of what you expected and so you're saying it works both both ways you love him but then you realize oh my god he's a bully you know he's talking about his private parts or you hate him and yet there's this this appeal but how does it get to the point where as i understand it i mean according to the stories mexicans and muslims are having flashbacks about living under dictators people are having memories of high school bullies they can't (laughs) sleep because they're thinking about donald trump i mean is this really filling up the waiting rooms of america's psychologists 
Well, uh, the, 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 the uh, article that you're referring to uh, did uh, interview uh, several psychologists, uh, other mental health experts, and some of them, quite frankly, said, no, we're not hearing anything about this from Donald Trump. Uh, in my own practice, I have to tell you that my patients make jokes about Donald Trump. Uh, they don't necessarily uh, are going to vote for him, but they don't see him uh, as this person who is uh, the boogeyman who is invading uh, their dreams at night. But I think what is going on, though, and this is very real, uh, you have people of the Jewish faith, you know, who still are scarred by the Holocaust, and they hear some of the rantings of a person who they may perceive as being sort of a demagogue. And so that reminds them, of course, of the Holocaust. For those of the Islamic faith, they hear about exclusion. For Latinos and Mexican uh, Americans, they hear how, you know, some of their brethren are painted as being criminals and rapists. Uh, you know, African Americans, they see a young woman being jostled in the crowds. So, you know, this is something uh, that is uh, serious as far as the images, the power of images in the media. Yeah, and we're you know, seeing, what and you and your co-hosts have is a lot of power having the media on your side, and it does affect people. And we're really seeing a lot of evidence from, from the Internet. We're talking, by the way, with Dr. Jeff Gardair. He's a psychologist in New York, America's psychologist, drjeffgardair.com. So we go online, Google shows a 350% increase in the question, how can I move to Canada? <laughs> yeah. Nova Scotia has a disc jockey. He's got a website where he invited Americans to relocate because of this 400,000 visitors. <laughs> One guy Googled, you know, how do I at acquire Italian citizenship? So it sounds like there's a massage therapist in Arlington, Virginia, who, who's treating people with, with uh, Trump anxiety. I think they're worried that the election might not have a happy ending. But that's just well, a, that's just a theory. <laughs> that, that, that was good, Royal. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll be here uh, all day. You know, but I think we need to look at, instead of fleeing the country, and it's, instead of being you know ruled by fear, uh, which and fear is something that can really be uh, toxic to the human emotions and to the physiology of human beings. Uh, certainly, that fear needs to be turned into power, uh, and that means that if you don't want Donald Trump, then make sure you get out there, get into the grassroots uh, grassroots movements, and you know make sure that he is defeated if he becomes the Republican nominee. Uh, for those who like Donald Trump, uh, then you know keep dumping for him, keep, uh, you know, going out there and turning out the votes. I mean, that is the, 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 the process of the American vote and the privilege that we have to use that angst to get the outcome that we're looking for. All right, Dr. Jeff Gardair, psychologist in New York. Check him out on the web. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on this issue. Pleasure to be with both of you. Thank you. Thanks Thank a lot. You. 6, I, 6.44 I the time. There's going to have to be some kind of diagnostic code now for the psychiatrists and psychologists. Well, I think the they just put it under Trump anxiety. Fear. It's in the DSM. And the good news, Terry Ray, Obamacare will pay for it. <laughs> uh, it'll be great. 6.45 the time. Talk Radio 790K ABC. And it's time to check in on the traffic. Bill Thomas, how are things looking out there? Talk Radio 790K ABC. in your face. 652 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Good morning to you. Uh, stay dry, stay safe Randy. out there. It's the OJs and it's Backstabbers. It fits oh, perfectly. See, the OJs. Royal in for Doug this Monday morning. So, so T-Ray, OJ's back. I, I but you were so delighted to, to see this back yeah, in the news cycle. Yeah. Uh, 
after what we what we went through in the 90s. So uh, everybody's kind of curious. Most people are cynical. Uh, the story, as you know from uh, what broke on Friday, is that uh, when O.J. moved out of the mansion uh, several years after the murders, uh, they decided, well, we're just going to demolish it. So the construction crew, somebody allegedly finds a bloody knife when they're, you know, raising the house. You know what they did, Royal, because mm-hmm. I bicycle over there. What they did was they turned the way the um, house faces so that they could change the number on it. Oh, okay. Because everybody knew the number of yeah. that house. So, you know, is it possibly the murder weapon? I heard John Phillips the other day saying, very oh, suspicious. Of it's in the middle of the FX network. Of it's in the smack in the middle. That. Of, of the 10 Tuesday exactly. series, and so is it a publicity stunt? But the, the first reaction everybody was having, oh, well, you know, it's double jeopardy, so he can't be tried again. Guess what, T-Ray? It's not true? I got a theory for you here. It's not true. Yeah. You don't think so? Here's the deal. Remember the Rodney King cops? Mm-hmm. They were found not guilty of the state law crime of beating Rodney up. Right. Okay. The feds came in and said, oh, you know, double jeopardy's fine. We're going to charge you with a separate crime, a federal crime, namely depriving Rodney King of his civil rights. And they had a second trial, and they got it right, and the cops were convicted and sent to jail. All right, now fast forward to OJ. State law against murder, found uh-huh. not guilty. What if it was a hate crime? What if he killed Nicole because he wanted to deprive her of her civil rights? You remember George Zimmerman? He yep. shoots Trayvon Martin, yep. found not guilty. The feds seriously considered charging him in federal court, okay? Let's say somebody uncovers a note from O.J. the day before the murder saying to his friend, that white blank, I'm going to get her for everything she's done. She won't let me see the kids. She won't let me come over anymore. Next day, he murders her. That note surfaces I think that provides a basis for a new trial against O.J. Simpson. Wow. But on the other hand, it's kind of academic because we know in 2008, O.J. was convicted of robbery when he went to the hotel room to buy his own stuff, and he brought friends along with guns, and it was tape-recorded, so we know there were guns. If they hadn't tape-recorded the meeting, I don't think they ever would have charged him. So he was convicted in 2008 of 9 to 33 years for robbery and kidnapping. Sentence. Sentenced, excuse me. And now he is up for parole in October of next year, 2017. Mm-hmm. I don't think the parole board is going to be very receptive to him. But if there's blood on this knife of his, they're really not going to be receptive. And if they let it go to 33 years, it will be the year 2041, and O.J. will be 93 years old. Wow. Just short of Nancy Reagan's age. Well, this this cop, this this retired cop, has been getting a lot of flack. It was like, what a dope. Why didn't he do something with the knife? His lawyer came out on Saturday and said, no, he's not a bumbling cop. He said that I took the knife to the traffic police and they told me they didn't want it. Yeah, so it was the policeman's fault. But still, we're told he, he kept the knife in his toolkit for 20 years. I mean, isn't that a little weird? Hey, Biff, would you would you fix that wrench, uh, use your wrench to fix the uh, the faucet? Hey, what's that bloody knife in your toolkit? <laughs> what's that all about? And then he wanted to frame it and it all broke because he called the cops and said, what was the case number? I want to put it on my frame. You better bring that down to the station house. 655 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Real life Doogie Hauser story when we come back. 659 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. So you remember Doogie Hauser, that lovable oh, yeah. 18 year old doctor? Well, that was okay because he was a real doctor. 
Uh, Malachi Love Robinson in Florida is an 18-year-old fake doctor. He's been arrested twice now for impersonating a physician. He peeked into a gynecological exam. Of course, you'd expect that. But also, he steals 34 grand from a lady who gives him access to her checking account. And then some lady comes in with severe pain. He gives her vitamins for the pain. So they're they're letting him uh, go through a mental exam. Uh, hopefully, they'll put him away for a long time. Hey, stay with us here on KBC. <laughs> it's McIntyre in the morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. 7.07 The Time, Talk Radio 790-KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Good Monday morning to you. I say good morning, but it is ugly out there. As you know, the rain is really coming down. We've got weather alerts in L.A. County, Orange County, Riverside, San Bernardino. So be super careful. Stay tuned. Bill Thomas here. He's going to keep you up to date shortly on, uh, on the updates on the traffic. And uh, be safe. Uh, you know, uh, the Saturday Night Live show uh, Saturday night was classic uh, T-Ray, and we actually have a link to some of the clips. Uh, you got to go to KBC.com because uh, the, the skits skewering Trump were just amazing. I was visiting a friend over the weekend and uh, got up yesterday morning, and I heard her laughing all the way from the kitchen. She was she was watching it the next day. Well, Daryl Hammond, just... you know, he was, on the, the, he was in the cast, and then he's the announcer, and now he has returned as Trump, and he is just killing. One of the lines from the show uh, is, Saturday, he says, uh, as Trump, he's saying, the media is saying they haven't seen anything like this, not since Germany in the 30s. I mean, everybody loves me. Racists, other racists, people who didn't even know they were racist. And then he trashes Christie, calling him a sad, desperate little potato, to which Christie replies, thank you, sir, may I have another? Well, it was a little weird. Did you see the video of Christie standing oh, with the, by with the Trump? Face? The he face. Says, oh, yeah. He and he came out. I, I think it was on Friday, uh, a Thursday maybe. He was like, "Oh, you guys are just making a big deal out of it. My face didn't mean anything. I wasn't." At, what, what was what, what people was, were saying? He looked he like was, a pod person. Uh, yeah, or that he was a hostage. Yeah, yeah, hostage. exactly right. So he's, he's been kidnapped. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like he was kidnapped. No, it was very odd. I mean, in his in fairness to him, we're used to seeing him very animated, animated. assertive talking you know you don't just look at, at at chris christie for 40 minutes just standing there just sitting there but still <laughs> you know he could have had a little emotion to the face like you know mouth yeah you go donald or something it looked it looked pretty anyway oh, check out geez. kbc's website some terrific stuff from from snl um and by the way uh the playoffs are in sight the division leading la kings are gunning for a Third Stanley Cup in five years as they take on Vancouver tonight at 7. Former King Daryl Evans and John Rosen describe all the action. That's Kings and Canucks tonight at 7 on the Home of the Kings, 790 KABC. So the Democratic uh, debate over the weekend and the Republican uh, race is, of course, heating up. Uh, we got Bob Costantini, reporter, to help us sort all of this out. I know you've been watching it carefully. Uh, Bob, uh, what's your take on, uh, on the latest development uh, on the presidential front? Well, Marco Rubio uh, can say he won Puerto Rico as far as uh, yesterday's uh, contest was concerned. Um, otherwise, the weekend belonged to Donald Trump and Ted Cruz and, uh, and the, and the uh, four contests that the Republicans had, I should say, uh, on Saturday. And they are, it seems, uh, seeking a kind of one-on-one uh, matchup. Trump uh, calling for, t- for Marco Rubio to get out of the race. And uh, Cruz uh, uh, saying that he wants to take on Donald Trump one on one, so that's uh, that's where we ended up Saturday evening. Marco Rubio, it should be worth uh, pointing out, 
uh, is hoping that in his home state of Florida, he is going to eke out a win because Donald Trump right now is ahead in the state of Florida. And uh, in a strategic move, Royal Ted Cruz has decided to put more money and time and effort into Florida as a yeah, way, knockout punch. As, as a way to maybe give uh, the state to Donald Trump, which is winner take all ninety nine uh, delegates. Uh, but if if Ruby he understands Cruz understands that if Rubio loses Florida, he's probably going to get out of the race. Well, so. but, but what's this deal with with Trump deciding now that his biggest enemy is Cruz? Well, uh, Cruz seems to be the one person who has uh, won the most contests and is closest to him in delegates. It's a uh, hundred or so delegates, depending on which count you actually believe. But um, Ted Cruz uh, presents the most formidable challenge in terms of Donald Trump. Uh, in, in for him, most formidable challenge uh, to prevent him from getting a majority that he needs. Uh, to, at the uh, convention event. Mm. We're talking with Bob Costantini. You know, it seems, Bob, there's a, such a split in the Republican Party, it's hard to imagine the rift healing. I mean, I thought it was fascinating to have uh, Romney come out with a big 15-minute yep. speech Friday morning, basically trashing Trump. And, of course, yeah, he would love to be the guy that they would turn to at the Cleveland convention. I think the game if for everybody except Trump is to somehow hold him below a majority of delegates going into Cleveland, and then, boom, anything can happen. Going to have a brokered convention. They haven't done it since 1952. But, I mean, can you? I can't imagine Donald taking it lying down. Talk about, you know, I'll, I signed the pledge assuming you'll treat me fairly. I would think he'd just keep going as a third party if, if they did that to him. Well, it's a double-edged sword for everybody to have... Uh Cruz, Trump, and Rubio still in the race, and and you know John Kasich, of course, is in there a little bit, and he may very well win Ohio uh, a week from tomorrow. Um, but it's a double-edged sword because it does help Trump in a lot of ways by splitting the anti-Trump vote. It helps Donald Trump say, "I've won," uh, okay. as he did in Louisiana with a 41 uh, percent of the vote, even though Cruz was relatively close behind him. But there were 11 percent of the voters in Louisiana's primary who went for Rubio. So by splitting the anti-Trump vote, uh, Trump can say, I've won in uh, Louisiana and Kentucky, as he did over the weekend, um, even though as far as delegates are concerned, uh, the, the tab I see here is that Louisiana uh, and Trump and Cruz both got 18 delegates out of that. And Kentucky, Trump got 17 delegates, Cruz got 15. So for Donald Trump um, to continue to say he won, uh, it's good to have uh, lots of other people in the race. Uh, for him to get the majority mm. he needs to win uh, at the convention is different. You know, we've been, <laughs> we've Rubio been so... Especially we especially stays in this contest all the way. We've been so used to the hand-to-hand -hand combat in the Republican yeah. debates. Finally, we're seeing a little fire <laughs> on the Democratic side. Let me play you a little sound, and then we'll get your reaction. Yeah. This is Clinton and Sanders on the auto industry. I voted to save the auto industry. He voted against the money that ended up saving the auto industry. Oh. I think that is a pretty big difference. Well, I, if you are talking about the Wall Street bailout, where some of your friends destroyed this economy. You know. Who, excuse me, I'm talking. Let him sprung. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
If you're no. going to talk, tell the whole story, well, Senator Let Sanders. me tell my story. You tell yours. I will. This is the guy who months ago, you remember, Bob Costantini, had yeah. one big issue against Hillary Clinton, and that was, well, maybe she's a felon. You know, she might be indicted. And he said in the debate, I'm tired of hearing about your damned emails. You know, yep. it'd be like debating against post-Watergate Nixon. I'm tired of hearing about those Watergate tapes. Let's talk about your opening to China, okay? I mean, it seems like it's getting kind of ugly now on the Democrat side as well. Yeah, uh, it certainly made the debate, I don't know, for lack of a better way of putting it, I guess, uh, uh, watchable, more <laughs> entertaining, however you want to say it. Uh, if you like that sort of thing, it was nowhere near, obviously, uh, what the Republicans have been doing to each other and, and talking over each other constantly. But, you know, it, you heard a lot of yelling. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Sanders tends to be really loud to begin with and yell a lot. And Hillary Clinton kept her voice up a lot in the debate last night. Um, you know, again, uh, on uh, Super Saturday, uh, Sanders won Nebraska and Kansas caucuses, while Hillary Clinton took the Louisiana uh, primary. And uh, she ended up coming out of the weekend with more delegates once again. Uh, then Sanders, uh, uh, Sanders also won yesterday's main caucuses, but it was a very low turnout, it looked like, uh, in Maine, from what I understand. But, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton has a significant lead in terms of pledged delegates, and she's way out in front when you throw in the super delegates that the Democrats have. Uh, so, you know, Bernie Sanders is uh, trying to go after her on the Wall Street issue, uh, and, and, you know, she, I think her campaign is trying to say he's just a one-issue kind of person. And again, he doesn't have to talk about the email controversy because the Republicans are going to do plenty of that uh, for him or for anybody who's going to run against Hillary Clinton, perhaps in the general election, if that if it turns out that way. So yeah, he doesn't have to. He can cast the email issue aside. It's it's going to be out there and it's going to be talked about in other circles. We're talking with Bob Costantini. Bob, do you think this whole experience uh, of the fight with Bernie Sanders is good for Hillary and that's sort of getting her battle ready to, to go up against the Republican <laughs> as opposed to her having to run to the left? Because for a few months there, she was sounding really progressive because she just didn't like the idea of Bernie outflanking her on the left. Yeah, and, and you know, this is why she's tried to differentiate herself from Sanders as well recently about the idea of his idea of health care for everybody paid for uh, by the government a uh, single payer health care system as, as you know many people who criticize it uh, call it uh, Medicare for all also is, is the way he kind of puts it so she's tried to differentiate herself by saying you can't you can't just do that or we can't go fight that battle once again especially especially the way Congress is made up right now. So, yeah, she's trying to uh, paint herself as more pragmatic uh, than Sanders' idealism. What is your take on on how Trump just seems to be the Teflon guy? I mean, the <laughs> stuff that he's done in terms of lies and the personal insults. I mean, I know the culture has changed. You know, in the 50s, you know, Lucy and Desi, they, they weren't in the same bed. And, and, and then you know, we would never have a divorced president. I oh, mean, no. it, it would just, you know, it excluded people. Well, How many now, times has he been divorced? Uh, I don't know if this is, I don't know if it is a three. So, but now, I mean, it's it's, divorced twice. Okay. So this is anything goes. I mean, let's listen to some sound of his confrontation with reporter Jim Acosta, and then we can talk about this issue. The other night at the Fox News debate, you seem to talk about, you know, the size of your manhood, if if I may put it that way, sir. (laughs) Sir, 
sir, some of the some of the yeah, people. Well, I mean, this is the problem the, with reporters. Look, Marco brought it up. Isn't that not presidential, no, sir? No, no, no. Let me engage you, I didn't bring it up. Excuse me. Somebody else said Donald Trump has small hands. So I said, small hands. These guys know. I hit a ball 280 yards. Stand up, my club <laughs> champion. Stand up. Do I hit the ball good? Do I hit it long? Is Trump strong? Ew. Uh, so I just simply <laughs> held up the hands. These are very strong hands, and they're fairly large, actually. Oh, but you know geez. what? I will be the most presidential candidate in history other than Honest Abe Lincoln. He was very tough to beat, okay? But when I get attacked by these people at a low level, I have to attack back. I can't stand there. Some people say, you're above it. You should stand there. That's not me. I can't do that. So is it because you think that everybody talks the way Trump does behind closed doors? I mean, basically, yeah. people don't hold back. Or is it just that we haven't changed our standards for presidents, but we're in such an angry time that we're looking for a strong man, and, and at every turn he tries to project total strength, even though it's accompanied with you know megalomania and narcissism? Yeah. And, and you know... Um, we often don't fact-check our relatives when they say things. <laughs> and look at it that way. We all have um, a cousin or aunt or uncle who just loves everything that Donald Trump says because he speaks the way they speak, and he says the things that they say, uh, but they wouldn't say, I suppose, if they were a presidential candidate. And a lot of it, truthfully, guys, and, and people ask all the time, and it's so hard to... to you know, explain the Trump phenomenon or find one great reason for it. But I think a lot of it has to do uh, with backlash against political correctness um, in in this country. And there are a lot of people who feel uh, that, uh, you know, political correctness has gone too far. Yeah. And Donald Trump appeals to them. Yeah, and, but again, it's, it's this question of whether or not he carries with it, with him, a majority of support among the likely Republican voters as we go forward. And oh, that's going to be the huge question. It's but mano you, a mano. You know, I, yeah. I think it also comes down to the idea of people want certain public policy outcomes. They want Obamacare or they hate it. They want more welfare or they, or they don't. They want to you know, go to war or they don't. And when you see a representative like Hillary or Donald Trump, they don't really care about their personal foibles. I mean... The, the surveys say when people hear Hillary's name, they, the, what's the one word that comes to mind? It's dishonest, okay? And, you know, with Watergate and Whitewater and the Travelgate and, and Benghazi and emails, it's gotten through to people that she's not the most honest person in the world. And Donald's psychological foibles have gotten through to people. I think people look past these things and say to themselves, I don't care. She has a progressive agenda, and damn it, that's what I want. And on Trump, I don't care. I want to make America great again. I don't care that this guy's obsessed with the you know, size of his manhood. Let's just get him in there and give it a chance. It seems like sort of the, the characteristics of the candidates are secondary. People just want the public policy options, and, and that's how they're going to vote. Well, um, and you can think back to uh, the election of Bill Clinton as president. So we understood the, the, peop the stories about his womanizing and, and some of his problems like that. Um, were out there. Uh, George W. Bush, it was understood, wasn't necessarily uh, the smartest person in every room. There's no question about it. Yet we, you know, uh, he's, we supported him. Uh, the 2000 election was contested significantly, obviously. Um, uh, but he won re-election as well, eventually. So, yeah, it's, it's the question of, and just like just the way the country uh, forgave Bill Clinton, the Monica Lewinsky uh, situation uh, after time and it absorbed it. 
Uh, so, too, do we seem to think that uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, truthfulness or his exaggerations and his ego are just uh, things we may be able to live with. Um, once he gets into the White House, he may have to change a little bit. <laughs> and Hillary Clinton, uh, it's understood, uh, is not necessarily the most open and out there and forthcoming person. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Obviously, we, uh, we, we want some kind of policy outcome, perhaps. But uh, it, it's, it, this is just unlike anything it's that fascinating any of us stuff. have well, ever it's, seen. It's not your father's election year. Yeah. That's the bottom line. <laughs> Bob Costantini, thanks for sharing your thoughts right, on the story. You. 7.22 The Time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. We don't need Apple's assistance to unlock an iPhone. We just open up our phone lines. 800-ABC-KABC. That's 800-222-5222. 738 The Time, Talk Radio 790-KABC, Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre today, along with T-Ray with the news. T-Ray, you were just reporting on uh, Bernie Sanders' comments in the Flint debate, and one of your reporters said that He's getting flack for imperfect words. And, you know, I read the the uh, the report, and apparently he said, you know, well, white people don't understand what it's like to experience Exactly. Racism. White people and then don't he said, know what it's like to be poor. To be poor, yeah. Is that what the guy was referring to? Because that was a weird line. I mean, why would Bernie Sanders say something like that? It's one thing to focus on the racism that people of color experience, but white people don't know what it's like to be poor? That yeah, was kind of ridiculous. That was kind of odd. Uh, but, you know, maybe Bernie will explain. Uh, we have been talking about Nancy Reagan. She passed over the weekend, and uh, we are fortunate to have with us Craig Shirley. He is an author of three best-selling books on Ronald Reagan, including Last Act, The Final Years, and Emerging Legacy of Ronald Reagan. Uh, Mr. Shirley, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we've heard a lot of people talk about how fiercely protective she was. That seems to be the main theme of her life that's coming through. What, what was it for you? What was your uh, big takeaway with respect well, to Nancy Reagan? Well, I think Reagan? it was a little bit, it was a, actually it was a lot more than that. Uh, she was uh, protective of him, but she also had her own life. She had her own interests. She had her own, uh, uh, you know, opinions about things. Um, you know, in many ways, I guess it proves the old adage that opposites attract because they were opposite in many ways. Where she was, she was city, he was country. She was silk, he was denim. She was uh, uh, French cuisine, he was, uh, you know, uh, hamburger. Um, <laughs> is that? The, but but ultimately, they agreed on. Uh, their devotion to each other, and it's really, really one of the great love stories of the uh, history of the uh, White House. Is I think their marriage ranks with uh, that of the Adams and the, and the Washingtons as far as their utter and complete devotion to each other. And there were so many letters and notes that, yeah. that are left behind by Ronald. I mean, he was just a chronic diary guy. Every night, yeah. he, I guess he would dictate or write it, and and you get such an insight. Uh, and it, and I think it supported what you're saying is that it wasn't just a public thing. Oh yeah, you know, no, everybody loves no, the first no, lady. No, 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 no. He wrote her. He wrote her letters for uh, for uh, fifty some odd years, um, uh, obviously until the uh, Alzheimer's affliction. Uh, but uh, you know, uh, long before uh, he thought of running for a higher office, when he was at you know GE and he was still uh, you know uh, in his salad days in Hollywood. Um, so long before he thought about running for governor or anything like that, he was writing her often uh, more than when he was on the road more than once a day. And they were tender, they were cute, they were they were silly, you know, dear mommy poo and. But then in 1980, he wrote her a letter, and, and he said, uh, maybe that job in Washington wouldn't be so bad because you'd be right upstairs. Um, no. So, 
You know, uh, she got a, she got a lot of flack over the astrology thing. Some people have written tell-all books and so on. What, what was your take in terms of uh, what her uh, influence was and whether Reagan himself was very interested in that? My, my, my attitude is, so what? You know, <laughs> is that after, uh, I think any of us, uh, if we'd had a, a spouse uh, nearly uh, murdered and would love that spouse, we'd turn to any and all means um, to, uh, to protect them from it ever happening again. She, she didn't just turn to astrology, but uh, in, in fact, they used to like reading their horoscope, going back to the, uh, you know, their marriage. And uh, In fact, I think Gene Dixon actually endorsed Reagan for president in 1980. Mm-hmm. Um, but, it, you know, it's just one of those things. You know, nobody questioned Hillary Clinton when she was holding seances in the White House trying to communicate with Eleanor, Eleanor, uh, with Eleanor Roosevelt. So, <laughs> I missed um, that. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, just, it's just one of those things, and I don't condemn her for it. I think she, she was interested in protecting uh, Reagan however she could, and if she could discern something into the future through astrology that would protect him, then uh, more power to her. We're talking with Craig Shirley, who's author of three best-selling books on Reagan, including The Last Act, The Final Years, and Emerging Legacy of Ronald Reagan. I mean, would it be overstating it to say that but for her influence and her pushing him and making him more ambitious, we wouldn't have seen a Governor Reagan or a President Reagan? Well, that's been said. Uh, both Lynn Knopfsinger said that and uh, Mike Deaver said that, is, is that without uh, Nancy Reagan, there would have been either. Um, it, you know, somebody once said that if... Um, Ronald Reagan wanted to be a shoe salesman. She would have made sure that he was the best shoe salesman in the world. It just so happens he wanted to be governor and president, and so she was uh, she was all on board with with helping him do those things. You know, she was um, she was it was such a polarizing thing. The attitudes toward Nancy Reagan. People would really ridicule the gaze. You know, when she would look up adoringly at him, right. they would ridicule her over you know fancy china and designer uh, uh, clothes and so on. Uh, the just say no thing. I mean, pe- some people loved her and said, absolutely, you know, this is a rallying cry. Other, right. Others would say this is so simplistic. So in a way, she, she really made her mark uh, one way or the other more than a lot of First Ladies. Well, uh, let's face it. They were conservative Republicans. Washington society had been dominated by, uh, by liberal Democrats since the time of the New Deal. Uh, they, they, you know, them coming into Washington in 1981 was like uh, you or I, you know, walking behind, you know, enemy lines, uh, is that the, the Washington Post, especially the style section, was brutal to the Reagans for all eight years and, and went after them in every way, form. In fact, even the week of his, his passing, the uh, style section of the Post went after the, the state of their marriage, went after, uh, su- suggested that he may have uh, proposed to another woman before Nancy and after Jane Wyman. Uh, it, you know, whether or not he was, they, they, they even wrote articles saying, well, he wasn't really all that great of an actor anyway. And they wrote articles saying, well, he wasn't all that great of a football player at Eureka either. So they just, they, they were just brutal. And the Washington Post and the style section really set the tone, uh, for the Washington society and, and thus the rest of the nation for a long time. So they always had to battle against yeah. that. And then on the other side, uh, that coin, you got uh, some poignant moments. Let's uh, listen to the sound of uh, Nancy Reagan. There are people who told me that uh, it gets much easier. Well, maybe for them, but not for me. I miss him more now than I ever did. It kind of backs up uh, mm-hmm. what you were saying about their relationship. Yes, it does. And, and, and she did live to be she, what a, a full, rich life. She lived to be 94, which is exactly the age he was, uh, was 94 when he passed away. 
Um, and, and she, you know, had said, not in a macabre sense, but, you know, after he passed away, that she wanted to be with, she wanted to be with Ronnie, and now, God willing, she is. Made her mark on the nation. All right, Craig Shirley, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. 7.45 The Time, Talk Radio 790KBC. Let's get to Bill Thomas. Look at those roads. I went walking that ribbon of highway. I saw above me that endless skyway. 7.51 the time. Talk Radio 790K, ABC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. So Bernie's got a new career as a singer. Remember Walter? Oh, you haven't heard this before? Yeah, I, I, I hear it every once in a while. I, I didn't know it was, you know, going to number one with a bullet. <laughs> it Walter, is Walter it Brennan is. used to sing, too. You know, they, uh, very weird. Hey, folks, uh, traffic alerts abound this morning. L.A. County, Orange County, Riverside, San Bernardino. So stay safe, stay tuned. Yes, to KBC. Bill Thomas's updates going to be coming at you regularly. So uh, slow down, stay safe. Uh, the Saturday Night Live skit uh, from uh, last Saturday, was they were wonderful what they were doing to, to Trump. Really uh, fabulous. And if you want to check them out, just go to the KBC website because we've gotten there. We've been talking about them this morning, but you, you want the visual angle uh, as well. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about the SmackDown in Flint uh, when uh, finally uh, Bernie and uh, Hillary are starting to go after each other. But this Aaron Andrews story uh, also was, is grabbing a lot of people. I don't know if you followed it much oh, last week. Oh, yes, uh, I did. Yeah, T-Ray. She, uh, Doug and I disagreed strongly about well, this. Well, she wants $75 million, which seems a little on the high side. On the other hand, it's hard to imagine how she could lose because uh, apparently she's already won. The, the judge said, yeah, the, the, the stalker, the peephole guy, right. he loses, but he's probably got no money. Uh, but then the big thing is, does she collect against the uh, the hotel? And Absolutely she does. Well, it sure seems like she, she has a right to. Now, here's what I understand. And talk about ingenious. The guy is this weirdo. He follows her around Mm -hmm. and he finds out what hotels she and the other football people are going to. And he goes into the hotel and he goes to the the house phone or the restaurant phone. You're sitting there and you say, oh, I want to call a guest. And they say, fine, here, use the house phone. When you call a guest on the house phone and I'd like to talk to Aaron Andrews, the operator says, okay, puts you through. It shows her room number. Exactly. It's not supposed to do that, okay? You're not supposed to have access to that. So then he knows what room she's in. He goes to the front desk and says, oh, um, 1113, that's my favorite room. Is that free? Oh, sure, Mr. Stalker, you can have that one. So he goes in there. And then while there's no you know, busboy with a $35 cheeseburger in the hallway, he removes the people, fixes it so he can uh, film it better. And apparently the two rooms were like like a, a, a facing each other and in an alcove. You know how it goes kind of? Right. That that may have been the case, but, but the key, as I understand it, in terms of the relationship between the two rooms is that he has to be next to her because he sits and he waits right. for the shower. And when he hears the shower, he knows in 10 minutes it's showtime. So he waits about 10 minutes and... The shower goes off, mm-hmm. and now he knows she's going to be in the buffo trudging around her room. So that's when he goes out into the hallway, puts the thing up. What a plan! I mean, this guy, if he you know used his powers for good instead of evil, and, and that's how. And then he gets busted. He spent two and a half years in prison. So let me ask you this: Do mm-hmm. you disagree that she has seventy-five million dollars worth of pain and suffering? I think seventy-five million is crazy. I mean, I'm not one of those guys who says, "Well, her career took off, exactly." And after all, she did a Victoria's Secret ad after this, and after all, she went on it's Dancing not the on the same Stars. Thing. Right, right. But 
you know, 75 million is a little out there. I think we're talking probably something south of a million uh, because she no, higher she, than that. She, Randy votes for a higher. Every person that she walks into, every person she walks past. Siri said, said this last week. Every person she sees in the whole world, she's got to be thinking, he's seen me naked. Yeah, but Randy, she's not an Amish girl. I mean, she's Aaron Andrews. She's a babe. She's on TV because she's a babe. What, what, Imagine what, what, how. What if it was one of your daughters? Well, you're, you're right. Then we're talking 150 million. There you okay? go. <laughs> now that's different. That's just. Flat different. <laughs> Just imagine Aaron Andrews, you're Aaron Andrews, and you walk past me on the street, you know I've seen you naked. I think that's worth $75 million. Okay, you guys have convinced me. All right, good. 7.50 for the time, Talk Radio 790K, ABC Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. It's McIntyre in the Morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Some of the time, Talk Radio 790K ABC. Good morning to you. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Hope you're staying safe. Uh, you got a, all sorts of weather alerts everywhere, so just slow down. Try to leave plenty of room between you and the next guy. So, the presidential election, the big topic on people's minds. We had the smackdown in Flint where Bernie and Hillary were really kind of going after each other. And, you know, everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's talking. You know, political science, they call it. It's not science. Everybody's got an opinion. <laughs> but here, we're now joined by David Merritt. He's political director of Luntz Global. And guys like this, they actually have some science, some statistics to back up their views. So uh, the pressure's on, David. You're going you're gonna to fill us in on uh, what your crystal ball says? I, I'll try. And, and since you have weather out there, we're talking about Hurricane Trump, right? We sure are. Yeah, really. it, it is unusual for us to, to have weather here in Los Angeles. It, it seems, David, like Trump, you know, every month or so just uh, shoots himself in the foot, whether it's, you know, all Hispanics are rapists and criminals and, and women, murderers, you know, the business with Carly Fiorina. It doesn't seem, it's like a, he's a Teflon guy, but that's our impression. And, of course, he's doing fine in, in these primaries. But what do the numbers say in terms of whether demographics, he's building up such animosity uh, among large groups of people that it's going to make it impossible for him to win. Well, it, you think he shoots himself in the foot, but he's actually shooting himself to the top of the polls. I mean, think of it. Every time he's had one of these, you know, one of these experiences where he goes way over the top, everyone thinks that he's going to come crashing down, but instead he keeps going up and up. Right. So, I think this thing with the Ku Klux Klan recently, that was probably the latest uh, you know, right. mishap you would think, but None of it has dented him, and it's because his supporters have basically said, look, this is the type of president, this is the type of nominee that we want, someone who is the anti-politician. And so when he says things like he said about, about Hispanics and about women and about people with disabilities, that's what they actually like. So when they see the elites and the media attacking him for doing it, they actually rushed his defense, and that's why he's going to be the nominee. Well, but let's look ahead, because everybody has to keep their eye on the prize. Being on top of the polls for the Republican primaries and, and the nomination generally, that's great. That's, that's the, his next objective. He can't win in November unless he gets nominated in Cleveland. But if he gets crushed, uh, you know, a la Barry Goldwater from 1964, when, when people were scared to death, Remember uh, the, the old story, Lyndon Johnson ran that, that famous commercial with a little girl picking the, you know, the daisy, yeah, yeah, yeah. the petals, yeah. and then the, the bomb goes off in the, uh, in the background. Apparently it only ran once, but we're still talking about it because Barry Goldberg scared the crap out of tens of millions of people. Now, 
if you look ahead, as you are able to do with your massive mainframe database there at uh, the Lutz Global uh, Enterprise, what does it say about Hillary versus Trump in November? Well, that will be the biggest circus I think we have ever seen. And I do think that that's going to be the matchup. I mean, it sounds insane. If you had said this a year ago, you would have been committed. But it really is the truth today. The next president of the United States will either be Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. And in that matchup, I used to think that he would get trounced as well. And I'm not a Donald Trump supporter by any means. And I used to think he would get trounced. But looking at it objectively, we've done a lot of research on Hillary Clinton. We've done a lot of research on Donald Trump. And the thing that I think will be the center of the race, the foundation of the race, pits his greatest strength versus her greatest weakness. His greatest strength is his authenticity. People think he is 100% genuine. Damn the consequences for what I say. I'm just going to lay it out there and deal with it. Versus her greatest weakness, which is her lack of integrity. Voters don't trust her. Even Democrats don't really trust her. They think she'll say and do anything to get elected. Yeah, they, so when, they, there yeah. was that. Was it a Gallup poll recently that came out and said it was just, you know, what the one word pops into your head when you hear the name Trump, Hillary, and so on? The one word, the one of plurality with Hillary was dishonest. And that's and you and and Trump is 100% honest, maybe honest to a fault in the voters' eyes. So when you pit his greatest strength versus her greatest weakness, I really do think it's going to be much closer than people think. We're talking with uh, the Luntz Global Director David Merritt. Um, you know, Frank Luntz, with his appearances on Fox in particular, and just in general, your operation has gotten so high profile. Uh, he, he is somebody that, that people pay attention to. You know, they don't they hear about George Gallup, but he wasn't exactly a, a personality in their lives. Frank Luntz seems to come across as if he's personally conservative when he's interacting with these folks. And I wonder about that. I mean, you think of a pollster you, like a news anchor. Yeah, they've got opinions, and, and some of them you absolutely know they're super right or left. But they sort of try not to betray personal views. And it, it's interesting to me that, that Frank Luntz doesn't seem to have tried. I wondered what, what your take is on that. Well, when we're out talking with voters, we want to hear what voters think. We're not there to try and convince them what they should think. So when you see us on Fox, when you see Frank on Fox or on CBS, we, all we're trying to do is be a translator from the voter to the general public. We try to figure out what are their priorities, what are their policy preferences, what kind of personality do they want? What do they want in a president? And so when you see us on Fox doing these groups, it's really trying to try to interpret what those findings and preferences are and report them back to the American people. Let's uh, get your take on uh, on Mitt Romney, but before we do, I want you to listen to some of the sound of his uh, pretty intriguing speech from Friday if morning. If the other candidates can find some common ground, I believe we can nominate a person who can win the general election and who will represent the values and policies of conservatism. Given the current delegate selection process, that means that I'd vote for Marco Rubio in Florida and for John Kasich in Ohio and for Ted Cruz or whichever one of the other two contenders has the best chance of beating Mr. Trump in a given state. So this was pretty astounding for the standard bearer of the Republican Party from four years ago to come out and just totally blast, just as oh, his yeah. opponents are, Donald Trump. And, you know, he's being coy. The uh, I think on, on the Sunday shows, uh, uh, Chris Wallace asked him, now, is this 100% you absolutely would never run and so on? And he wouldn't say that. So mm. he'd love it if they turned to him in Cleveland and said, oh, my gosh, Mitt, we, we, this is a head scratcher. Would you, would you <laughs> run again? What do you see from your, from your database standpoint in terms of the prospects of possibly a brokered convention? I mean, is it really all about somehow, some way, these guys keeping Trump below 50% as they go to Cleveland and then all hell breaks loose? 
Well, that, that appears to be the only strategy left. And, and honestly, I think that Mitt Romney is a good man. He was not a good candidate. Uh, Trump is right on that front. And there may be a, a sentiment among Republican voters that Trump is trouble when it comes to winning in November. The problem with Mitt's speech is that he was the wrong messenger. He is the epitome of the establishment. And when you have Trump supporters, you know, literally, in some cases, maybe holding pitchforks and, and rushing the gates in Washington, he is the last person that they're going to listen to to well, try and convince them otherwise. So he was speaking to the establishment audience, which had already tried to rally behind Marco Rubio. So I, honestly, I thought that it made for good political theater. I thought it fell completely flat and certainly fell on deaf ears with Trump supporters. So I don't think it moved the needle at all. Well, David, if they were going to send somebody, who should they have sent then? Well, you need some. I, I don't I, know. I got, I got a theory. Honestly, I got a theory. And I know this is not this isn't going to fit in with your uh, approach, what? David. Bush 41, w. George Bush, not not W, the dad. Well, He's in his 90s. He can barely, you know, walk. ambulate. But if he got up there and was able to, to have a halfway decent impression on TV and say, look, I know you're going to think this is about Jeb. It's not about Jeb. I want I want somebody who's going to win and somebody who's a real Republican. There might be some, you know, some sympathy factor. I mean, he's only talking to Republicans here. Because uh, other than that, as you say, David, and you're, you were thinking about a name, I can't think of who could carry the message who wouldn't no. be just poo-pooed by the audience. No, I think that anyone who has been in office is going to be tainted as a politician. So, so most folks are not going to listen to them because people hate politicians. They hate Washington. They're fed up with it. So I think, honestly... Trump is he's a phenomenon that will continue to, to rise and will continue to win because there is no strategy that can stop him at this point. Now, Once you're a Trump supporter, you will always be a Trump supporter. That's what our data has shown going back to last summer. If you're a Trump voter, you've been there for a long time, and you're not going anywhere. So convincing them to abandon Donald Trump is a losing battle. Now, a few weeks ago, when Rubio sort of reached his high mark for a little while before he imploded in the debate, uh, there were actually some national polls that I saw, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, and, and if you think this was this was anything place close to accurate, where if you match Rubio versus Hillary, and then the other guys against her, he was the best. He beat her like forty-seven to forty-one, and then Cruz beat her maybe forty-five to forty-three, and Trump lost to her like forty-seven to forty-four. Uh, is there anything to those numbers that I just rattled off? Is that sort of a path to victory for Rubio, for everybody to fight and fight and keep reading polls showing that he actually does the best against Hillary? Well, that's been one of his main arguments of late, and, and I think the polls have proven him right in that they've consistently shown him beating Hillary Clinton. And for the longest time, the polls consistently showed Donald Trump losing to her. I think there was at one point we did a tally and we tallied up 40 or 45 national polls, and Donald Trump had beaten her one time out of 45 polls. Mm. So he, he consistently loses. Um, I think it's because he is so polarizing. I think he is, you either love him or you hate him. And most general election voters at this point probably don't support him. But I think that he will be a different candidate. I think he will. And, and think of this. When he puts his sight on someone like Ben Carson, like Scott Walker, like Jeb Bush, like Ted Cruz, they've all been knocked down a peg or knocked out of the race altogether. 
So I do take Trump at his word. He hasn't even focused on Hillary Clinton yet, and that's why I think he will make this a much tighter race. We're talking to David Merritt, political director of Luntz Global. Now, Saturday Night Live made a big splash. Uh, they always come <laughs> through during these uh, big high-profile election uh, campaigns. Let's uh, listen to a little bit of uh, the Trump and Christie parody. Everyone loves me. I even got this fat piece of crap behind me now. <laughs> Isn't that right, Chris? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Please, sir, may I have another? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he really is a sad, desperate little potato back there, aren't you, Chris? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Please, sir, may I have another? Also, P.S. America, I have a great, big, huge... So that's pretty harsh. And then the other skits involve, you know, a swastika armbands. Uh, and yet, what do you think? It just still just rolls off of Trump's back? I, pretty much. I mean, look, if you're the lead, you know, skit on Saturday Night Live, you're doing something right. Um, so I think that he takes these types of of barbs and he, you know, he uses them as fuel for his campaign. Um, and, and one thing I'd say on Chris Christie, you know, he was he. I thought he ran a good campaign. It was just the the wrong cycle. He probably would have won if he had run in 2012. Uh, but it was a mistake for him to be standing behind Trump for 30 minutes while he answered questions. Um, so just the optics of that didn't look good for yeah. him. No. Now, with Trump being as mercurial, shall we say, as he is, if there were a brokered convention and they ease him out, and if he kind of had a legitimate argument that really throughout the primaries he should have should have been the number one guy, and he's always said, yeah, I signed the pledge, but they got to be fair to me, I would think that he would really seriously toy with a third-party run, maybe just to spite him because he's not the most balanced guy in the world, and if that happened, it's totally lights out, right? I mean, it's just, you know, inaugurate Hillary in November. Oh, there'd be no question about it. And honestly, I think it would mark the end of the Republican Party as we know it. I mean, he has more delegates than anyone. He has a 16-point lead nationally. He's leading in every state poll coming up over the next 10 days. He's a quarter of the way there with delegates. If somehow he is not the nominee and there's some sort of smoke-filled room brokered <laughs> deal... I mean, he has millions of people who would literally walk out of the Republican Party. He's won more votes. He's won more primaries. I think it would be a catastrophic mistake to try and, and take that from him if he, you know, as expected, wins many of these primaries and actually wins the delegate count. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if, if somehow Kasich wins Ohio, Rubio somehow comes back from almost 20 points down to win Florida, maybe they make it so it's impossible for Trump to win it from a math perspective. But I think if they do try and take it from him, and he does have a legitimate shot at, at it, I think it'd be a big, big, big mistake. Yeah, well, you know, I just his personality is such that I could see him going for it. I mean, when you think back over the last couple of decades, even third-party guys that weren't anywhere near the tsunami of, of, of fame and, and popularity uh, have made the difference. If you look back at Ross Perot in 1992, I think, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the numbers show that if it weren't for Ross Perot, Probably Bush 41 would have beaten Clinton. And then in, in the uh, Ralph Nader case in 2000, when Bush beat Gore, although Gore got more votes, it was Ralph Nader siphoning off enough votes around the country that prevented a few electoral votes. So those two guys, Nader and Perot, actually decided the election. Trump, he, he's ten times as powerful as either one of them. Oh, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Perot lost it for Bush, and uh, Nader lost it for, uh, for Gore. In this case, we, we, and we've actually asked this question a number of times in focus groups with Trump supporters, 
and in a national poll of Trump supporters, would you follow Donald Trump out of the Republican Party if he ran as an independent? And three-quarters of them said yes. Oh, my gosh. Amazing. We've been talking with David Merritt, political director of Luntz Global, and I have a question now. You know how when you think to yourself, should I say this? Should I ask this? Go for it, And then you you say, oh, I shouldn't. Well, I I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it. I'm I'm going to get into trouble, David. Okay, Frank Luntz. You know, I, I love watching him on TV. But I have, and I know he's probably your boss, but I have to ask you a question. Has he done a focus group on his haircut? Oh, come on, Royal. Well, that's, no, no. that's terrible. I, I knew I was going to get into trouble. It's just that, to me, the hair is so important, you know. So, so you're saying you disagree with me, David? You don't, uh, don't have a problem with this do on TV? Well, if we're going to talk about anyone's hair, I think it would be Donald, <laughs> Donald Trump's Trump. hair rather than Frank's. All right, touche. Uh, you, you win the exchange. David Merritt, political director of Luntz Global, uh, uh, who has a luxuriant head of hair, uh, thank you so much for sharing part of your morning. <laughs> thank you, guys. Take, Take care. care. 823, <laughs> Talk Radio 790, KBC. I don't think he don't likes think me. You know, I think we were fine up until that up point. Up until then. We kind of bonded. We could have had a beer together. Oh, my God. He, his boss has a lousy haircut, and I, I called him on it. I think he has a lousy toupee, yeah. not a lousy haircut. Oh, you could be right. 823 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KBC. Bill Thomas, save us. What's going on out there? Call now. Call me if you're interested. What's your phone number? 800-ABC-KABC. Ask for the phone number, not the phone letters. That's 800-222-5222. Thank you. Donald Trump's hair. Donald Trump's hair. 8.37 The Time. Oh, Talk so Radio 790-KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. And we're... Talking the presidential election from a lot of different angles, and and uh, I'm really looking forward now to chatting with uh, Matt uh, Wilstein. He's entertainment writer for the Daily Beast. Uh, Matt's going to fill us in on his take on the comedy case against Donald Trump. <laughs> Matt, how you doing? Good. How are you doing? Doing well, thanks. Uh, boy, the uh, the SNL uh, skits. I mean, obviously they love it when the big political season rolls around. Over the decades, they've just oh, been yeah. fantastic. Uh, but I mean, they're really really going hard against Donald Trump. What, what was your take on, on the skewering over the weekend? Well, they kind of did a one-two punch at the beginning of the show. Uh, they opened with um, a clip of, of their Trump with, uh, with Chris Christie, and including a, a joke about uh, his hands and, and other things at the beginning. But then the real, the real uh, hit came in a few minutes later, I think, when they did the, the ad commercial campaign ad parody um, where you saw just some sort of regular people uh, who seemed to be in- endorsing Trump and everything was all nice. And about halfway through the ad, you realize that they were all Nazis and KKK members and and conspiracy theorists. And, and that's when the real uh, the real satire set in. Well, he just and, Trump just gives people so much ammunition. I mean, you, you think, gee, it's yeah. over the top is a little harsh. But, you know, when he stumbles over a softball question like, well, would you welcome a, a support by a white supremacist, this David Duke? I mean... Was he just lying? I mean, people were speculating, oh, well, he didn't want to turn off all the white supremacists in those big uh, uh, Super Tuesday southern states. Give me a break. Did he have no sense that this would hurt him, that, that it would be a Hillary Clinton endless loop in the fall of him waffling over whether he welcomes white supremacist support? I mean, it's insane. Well, I think the scary part, and this is what the, the Saturday Night Live ad was getting at, is, which, is that he might actually think it could help him. Yeah, um, and, and you know we may have seen that happen with some of those southern states over the over Super Saturday. Wow, um, and uh, and Super Tuesday, and, and you know I think that that he was he was uh, maybe 
right politically to, you know, say, I don't know, I'm not going to weigh in one way or the other on that. And that gave both sides, you know, something to work with. You know, SNL has just done such a, an amazing job over the years. You think back, like Dana Carvey, you know, oh Bush 41, a thousand points of light, you know, wouldn't be prudent. It, it found its way into, into the pop culture in a big way. And then, you know, Will Ferrell, same thing with Bush 43, total, mm-hmm. total doofus, you know, the decider and all of, all of the, the garbled syntax and so on. How do you compare uh, th- those approaches, those hits from a, a decade or more ago to what they're doing now with Donald Trump? Well, I think the interesting thing about the Will Ferrell, George W. Bush is that a lot of people actually think that, you know, even though he portrayed Bush as, as kind of an idiot, that it actually um, sympathized Bush for a lot of people. And really? They, you know, they said, mm. I, I like Will Ferrell, and I like, uh, and, you know, I, I think that this, this character that he's doing is kind of endearing, and that it actually made people like Bush more. Yeah. So whether that's, you know, scientifically proven, I'm not sure, but that, that's, what a, that's what a lot of people have said. Um, with Trump, uh, you know, I'm not sure that they could do that same thing with him if, they're, if their portrayal of him is making people like him. But they did have him host the show, which I think, um, you know, gave him even more uh, fire at a time when he when he maybe needed it. So yeah. I think maybe what you're seeing now with this with these parodies is them you know, atoning for, for giving him that big platform. You know, Republicans uh, always, of course, like to talk about bias in the media and so on. It seems like it does kind of come through in, in the comic area. Because, for example, you think about, you know, Daryl Hammond doing Clinton. I mean, it was all about him being a womanizer and he was a junk food junkie and so on. And uh, Obama, I mean, Jay Farrow and Fred Armistead, both of them, you know, not not really very biting. And then you turn to the Republicans. I mean, Tina Fey with Sarah Palin, you know, I can see Russia from my house. Like, she's an utter moron, uh, which maybe she is, I'm not sure. <laughs> Dan Aykroyd, you know, going after Nixon and Bob Dole so hard. I mean, you think maybe there's a little bit uh, of a political uh, attitude that, that gets into these satires and makes them a, a little more pointed when they're going after the Republicans? I think you might be able to argue that, especially with Obama, but that's partly because I think they never quite have figured out how to make Obama funny, and that's mm-hmm. been a problem for a lot of uh, for comedians um, over the last eight years. The one exception I would say to your to your argument there is their current portrayal of, Hil- of Hillary Clinton, um, which is done brilliantly, I think, by Kate McKinnon, and she's really doing something very different from what we saw with the previous uh, Hillary Clinton from Amy Poehler. Yeah. It's much more pointed. It's much more um, kind of ruthless. No, you're right. Um, you know, she not, she not is super likable. Yeah, she uh, is pointed. <laughs> she does a wonderful job. But I have to say that a couple of months ago, when Hillary herself was on the skit and she played a bartender named you know Ethel, and Kate McKinnon played Hillary, and they had this wonderful exchange. And to me, that was the most humanizing thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. I mean, Hillary Clinton was funny. Mm. She was light. She was a good actress. And, you know, you, you could, if you were a cynic, say, well, that's kind of the SNL agenda. Maybe they wanted to give her a little boost. Because I don't think that satire hurt Hillary that night. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Whenever somebody, whenever a candidate comes on and makes fun of themselves, um, it is humanizing. You know, she did it for five minutes. Bernie Sanders did it for a few minutes recently with Larry David. But again, Trump did it for 90 minutes when they, they had him on for the whole show. So I think... Yeah, again, that's true. Hard, that's true. I think they were saying he was only on the screen for like 15 minutes yeah. or something. But still, it was a great showcase for him. Now, you mentioned the, uh, the opening to SNL. Let's listen to a few seconds of that. It was just classic. Everyone loves me. I even got this fat piece of crap behind me now. <laughs> Isn't that right, Chris? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Please, sir, may I have another? <laughs> I mean, he really is... A sad, desperate little potato back there, aren't you, Chris? 
Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Please, sir, may I have another? Also, P.S. America, I have a great, big, huge... So, so for people who are worried about the coarsening of our society, Matt Wilstein, entertainment writer for the Daily Beast, I mean, fat piece of crap, uh, sad little potato of a man, that's pretty harsh stuff. I think if I were Christie, I'd be a little glum about that. Yeah, but they, again, they were just mirroring the language that Trump uh, seems to use on the campaign trail every day. So fact, uh, you know, fiction is not that much crazier than fact in this case. Yeah, it, it is a more remarkable, the whole thing with little Marco and the business about the hands and so on. Uh, it's truly an amazing election cycle. Matt Wilstein, entertainment writer for The Daily Beast, thank you so much for sharing part of your Monday morning with us. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a good day. 844 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, O.J.'s knife, maybe, uh, and I got a theory, we could see a second O.J. Simpson murder trial in spite of that pesky double jeopardy rule. Stay with us. Talk Radio 790 KABC, Dependable Traffic. Here's Bill Thomas. Talk Radio 790K, ABC, Royal Oaks, in Doug McIntyre. There's a rainy Monday morning. Hope you're staying safe. Uh, do stay tuned to us. Uh, Bill Thomas will get you safely uh, to your destination. And uh, and check out our website if you're into those uh, SNL uh, parodies. Uh, they're posted at KABC. He said SNL, not SNM. Yeah, exactly right. Oh, exactly come right. on. And, and speaking of the Saturday Night Live uh, stuff, we've got a caller who's got an opinion about this. Steve from San Juan Capistrano. Welcome to KBC. How you doing? All right. Thanks for taking my call. No problem. I've been watching you know, Saturday Night Live for years, you know? I'm an old hippie, you know, but, you know, when you're young and you're a liberal, you know, if you're, if you're not a socialist when you're young, you know, you don't have a heart. But if you're a socialist when you get older, you don't have a brain. I think it was Winston Churchill said that. Anyway, Saturday Night Live is, is a little bit left-leaning, you know. They really are a little left. And when you grow up and you get some skin in the game, you know, you realize that some of those lame things you believe when you were young and you poke fun at all the conservative you know, responsible people that are in business and, you know, the movers and the shakers, the people that are responsible, get up in the morning, you know, with an alarm clock. They're reliable, dependable. Their word means something. And they're not sitting around all drugged out anymore. You know, we, we grow up, you know. So the only one I've seen come out of Saturday Night Live really over the years that really has any brains to me is Dennis Miller. He's the, guy that, he's the only guy that I think out of Saturday Night Live that really grew up and, in, in, uh, you know, finally got an idea of the scope of, uh, of human behavior and what is responsible and desirable in adults. Well, you know, yeah, I think you're right. Dennis is, is terrific, and he, I think, calls himself like a 9-11 conservative. He's sort of maybe a little left to center or moderate mm-hmm. going in, and then he, he got into the whole patriotic fervor of it. But, yeah, Steve, I, I, I think I, I was trying to make the same point when we were talking with Matt uh, Wilstein. Uh, I, I think they, they do tilt a little left, but you have to give it to them. It's, it's brilliant stuff. I mean, it's <laughs> hilarious, and whoever they're skewering. So uh, I think the, they're just going to continue to love this election season. Hey, we've been talking a little bit about uh, the OJ situation, and actually Next hour, we're going to be joined by L.A. news legend Patrick Healy from NBC4. He's been reporting on the big story Friday that maybe the bloody knife from the killings of Nicole and Ron from 1994 uh, was found at a construction site uh, years ago uh, after O.J. moved out. They were they were demolishing But it doesn't the, the matter, house. Royal, because it, he can't be tried again. Oh, funny you should mention that. So here's the deal. Everybody was talking, and, and I was saying the same thing. Uh, the initial reaction is double jeopardy means, you know, this is interesting and might kind of 
put to rest the question of his guilt. But uh, no way you can try O.J. a second time for the murder because of the double jeopardy rule. And in a way, who cares because he's rotting in prison in Lovelock, Nevada anyway, maybe until 2041 when he's about 93. But here's the theory for a second O.J. Simpson trial. You remember how the Rodney King cops in the early 90s were uh, charged with police brutality for beating up Rodney? Right. And they were found not guilty in state court based on a state law charge of beating up Rodney. Okay, not guilty. The feds come along and say, we're familiar with the double jeopardy rule, but you know what? It doesn't apply because Supreme Court agreed with them. If you violate a federal law, and it's the same act you committed, beating up Rodney, if you can be charged with depriving Rodney of his civil rights, there was racial animus, racial hatred, you can have a second trial. And as we all know, after the not guilty verdict and the riots, then the next year they had a federal trial where they were found guilty. Fast forward to George Zimmerman in Florida. Boom, boom, he kills Trayvon Martin. Not guilty in state court. The feds seriously looked at charging him a second time for the murder of Trayvon. Now, they passed because they didn't have the evidence of racial animus. So here's the punchline. O.J. maybe wrote a letter to his friend. I'm just talking hypotheticals here. Uh Shortly before the murder, saying, you know, that white blank... Nicole, she, it's the final straw. She won't let me see my kids. She, she's forced me out of the family. She won't re- reconcile. I'm going to get her. If somebody has any evidence like that, and if they can find a bloody uh, knife that was buried for 20 years, maybe they can find a, uh, a buried email, the feds could charge him with a federal hate crime, racial animus, and we're back in the saddle again. How, how often does that happen, It's though? pretty rare. Oh, sure, you're a buzzkill. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot, T-Ray. I got this big theory, and all of a sudden, well, it's pretty unlikely, isn't it, Royal? I, I, yeah, I will grant you it's pretty unlikely. But yeah, And as I said, I mean, it's academic. O.J. stupidly got himself convicted for robbery, taking his own stuff out of a hotel room where the guy was going to sell memorabilia. And you know, it was a do-over. If it was anybody but O.J., they would have given him a slap on the wrist. They might not have even prosecuted, but they gave him 9 to 33 years. He is up for parole in October 2017. If it turns out the glo- the, the, the knife does have O.J.'s blood on it, oh, not only would they that put an end to the age-old issue, yeah, or exactly, uh, about his guilt, but also I think the parole board in Nevada, if they were wobbling about giving him parole, I think that would uh, – I would tip him over to say, sorry, OJ, you're going to be here till you're 93. 854 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. When we come back, a real life Doogie Hauser. Stay tuned for that. It's McIntyre in the Morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. 906 The Time on our rainy Monday morning, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. We've been talking about the uh, Saturday Night Live skits on uh, Trump. You can check them out on KBC.com plus McIntyre in the Morning's Facebook page. Now, Randy Wang, uh, if I heard you right a second ago, um, you said DuckTales is the best show on ABC. Are you? I'm sorry, I meant Channel 9. It was on KCAL. Oh, I screwed yeah, that up. Because you said ABC, and I thought, well, you know. It was a Disney show. Corporate is going to visit you, and plus, you're overlooking the middle. You, you ever see the middle of the sitcom on Wednesday nights on ABC? Oh, my husband is addicted oh, it's to that. so great. The dad is the tall janitor from Scrubs. The mom is Ray Romano's wife from Everybody Loves Raymond. It is a fabulous show. So I would put it ahead 
of DuckTales. All right, then. Take that, Randy. Exactly right. Hey, the playoffs are in sight. The division-leading L.A. Kings are gunning for a third Stanley Cup in five years as they take on Vancouver tonight at 7. Former King Daryl Evans and John Rosen describe all the action. That's Kings and Canucks tonight at 7 on the home of the Kings, 790-KABC. So we've been talking about the O.J. Simpson story, if you can believe it, back in the news. Friday morning the news broke that years ago, a construction worker finds a bloody knife at the house when they were basically demolishing a Simpsons mansion on Rockingham. And uh, allegedly he hands it over to a retired cop or an off-duty cop. Well, to help us sort out the details, we are lucky to have Patrick Healy, NBC4 reporter. Patrick, how are you? Well, great this morning. Such a pleasure to join you and Terry Ray. Well, thank you. you. And uh, please give us the latest, because everybody got all jazzed Friday morning about this. And then there was kind of a little buzzkill thing where we heard somebody sort of unofficially saying, oh, well, maybe it was a serrated knife and the actual wounds weren't from a knife like that. And now we don't really know what to to know about it. What's your take? Well, I got to tell you, Royal, there was that frenzy that erupted on Friday morning when the story broke. Uh, you know, actually, they've been simmering for a few days. There were a few in the business who had tips that this was coming. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, the reality is it may prove to be a, a flash in the pan. We were getting information as early as late Friday morning that the LAPD's uh, detectives and criminalists had looked at this knife, and it just didn't, it didn't ring true. It, it appeared to be too small. Um, it also did not like look like it had been buried for any long period of time. So uh, they had their doubts very early on. But, you know, face it, given all the attention this case has gotten over the past generation, the fact that, it, you know, there's a whole new generation of people interested in it, courtesy of that FX uh, dramatic multi-part serialization that is such a buzz right now. LAPD figured they had to take a look at it. And so they're going to do all the tests, but quite frankly, it will be tests to rule out this knife rather than to glean any information about that horrific mm. double murder 22 years ago. Yeah, I hear you. And we're talking to Patrick Healy, NBC4 reporter. And Patrick, you're right about that FX show. I mean, I've been glued to it since uh, since I was so into the OJ trial 20 years ago. But it's 10 Tuesday nights in a row from February to April. Right. They won't let you download it like House of Cards. All of it. They want to establish <laughs> FX viewers. Uh, but basically, right in the middle of this 10-week series, all of a sudden the knife surfaces. And, and Patrick, I think a lot of people were a little cynical, almost to the point, well, well, it must to be a publicity stunt, but I mean, there's no evidence of that as far as you know. Right. No, but I think there's definitely a nexus between the show bringing back attention in the case mm-hmm. and the fact that this uh, a retired LAPD motor officer, after all these years, decides that, well, maybe now is the time to recontact the department. Now, we haven't spoken to this motor officer directly, but we haven't spoken to his attorney, Trent Copeland, and the attorney makes the case that, look, the officer early on, as soon as this knife was handed to him uh, by a construction worker, so the story goes, uh, he called West L.A., actually traffic, which is where he used to work before he retired, mm-hmm. and said, look, this guy gave me this knife. What should I do with it? And as the attorney tells the story, the officer was told, well, the, the case went to trial. O.J. Simpson was acquitted. Uh, we have no use for that evidence, so you know, why don't you keep it? 
And, and Patrick um, Haley, so you know, isn't that kind of weird? Very oil? weird. And what I was going to say, Patrick, the first reports we heard Friday were that he didn't tell his old pals at the LAPD. He just took it on himself to say, "Well, OJ was acquitted, so I'll just hold on to this thing." But but apparently, his lawyer is pitching the idea that at least he tried to do the right thing. That that is Copeland's account. But but again, that he contacted the traffic division at West LA, <laughs> right? Uh, not homicide. And at some point, according to Attorney Copeland. He actually called back more recently uh, to try to get the O.J. case number. I'm not sure, you know, if he would have uh, power at this point to go look up the case. But anyway, he ends up turning this into LAPD just in the past month. But, you know, the timetable of this is very interesting as well, because we all recall Simpson was acquitted in a criminal case, uh, but uh, there was a civil suit, and he was found responsible for wrongful death, this $30 million-plus judgment, which meant he had to sell the Rockingham estate. And right. the Rockingham estate, the, the tearing down of it began in 1998. But it was five years later when this motor officer says he came into possession of this knife and that it was handed around by a construction worker at that site. Yeah, so so a lot of suspicious question marks. Well, you talked about the LAPD a little. Let's listen to a few seconds of uh, of their response to this situation. I don't know what the circumstances are, why that didn't happen, or if that's entirely accurate, or if this whole story is possibly bogus from the get-go, uh, involving a variety of people. So we're looking into that, but I, w I was quite shocked. So they, they, it sounds like they're a little cynical about the whole thing. Did you, did you uh, notice part of the story, Patrick Healy, involved the construction boss who, who, who was supervising these guys, so, one of whom found it, saying, no, it's no, a bunch of baloney, it's a joke, says, it's a baloney. They would have told me. And my reaction is, hey, pal, what, just, what makes you think that all of your guys would come running to you if they found something interesting, you know, a diamond ring or an O.J. knife? <laughs> he, he wants to poo-poo it for some reason. I, I, I don't know what his motivation is, but he's sticking to his story. <laughs> well, it, I haven't talked directly to Mike Weber, but yeah, that's the account that he has given, uh, that he coached his workers before they began the demolition of the uh, Simpson, the former Simpson property. You might encounter something interesting, but you know, it's got to be pointed out, uh, Carl Douglas, the attorney who was a member of the famed dream team that represented Simpson in 1995, Douglas, I was talking to him the other day, and he points out, look, LAPD did an incredibly detailed search of that property when they got the warrant. They even went up to the bathroom and took apart the plumbing to look for any evidence of blood or anything that had been hidden. Douglas says, look, after LAPD did that, that kind of a search, you think something is just going to pop up in a construction worker's hands? Well, but if they didn't dig up the grounds... Well, okay, Terry Ray, I'll give you that point. <laughs> is there any suspicion that this cop who uh, who found it and held on to apparently was in his toolkit for 20 years, and then as I heard the story, Patrick, uh, he wanted to frame it, and for it to be a proper frame, he wanted to know the, the case number, and that's what led a few months ago to him calling up his old pals. Hey, what was the case number on that Simpson deal? And then that led to the conversation. But, but some people were saying, you know, cops have an obligation uh, to hand over evidence pertinent to open investigations which technically the, these murders were, uh, because Simpson was found not guilty. Is there any talk the about him? Yeah, about him being prosecuted for this? Well, that question came up right away, and you played that clip from uh, Captain Andy Nyman at LAPD from the briefing that occurred at uh, a little after 9 a.m. on Friday morning, and already that was the question that was coming up. 
this guy's a cop. He spent his career as a cop. He should know that you've got to turn over something that is potential evidence. And again, if Andy Nyman raised that question, he could not understand it, why the guy wouldn't have known that. And But Trent Copeland says that from the beginning that this officer did not think it was actually related to the case. But it kind of, you know, creates this dual situation. Well, why did he hold on sure. to it then if he, yeah, you know, it's just... It's, but, but in answer to your original question, uh, Royal, of course, you know the law better than I do, but uh, potentially this man could face uh, some kind of consequences for withholding evidence if he did indeed have reason to believe it could have been evidence in a case. All right. We're talking to Patrick Healy, NBC4 reporter. His Twitter handle is at PatrickNBC4LA. Let's listen to the infamous Mark Furman, uh, his take on this recent development. I kind of wonder why uh, the Los Angeles Police Department felt compelled to do a press conference on, on an item of uh, possible evidence that they could uh, quite easily eliminate uh, just by viewing the knife. Uh, you don't need forensics. It's really suspect to me, and they can eliminate it almost immediately. I know. I don't know why he would say you can eliminate it almost immediately. Okay, let's say it's of a type that would inflict wounds that are not consistent with some right. or all of the wounds on the. That would take time to look into. I mean, I would think that it, a guy could have two knives. You you wouldn't necessarily have the same kinds of wounds. But uh, who knows what Furman's uh, Furman's uh, motivation here is? Patrick Healy. One thing that sort of called out to me is. The great debate over Simpson's guilt over the years has been a result of the fact that a lot of people, including the members of the Simpson murder jury, felt the cops were not only clumsy but maybe racist evidence planters. And they react to the fact that Simpson's blood was all over the murder scene, all over the Bronco mixed in with Ron and Nicole's, and all over his home. Just a trail, a guilty trail of dripping blood. The reaction was, when Simpson got back from Chicago, and they, you know, handcuffed him briefly. They took a vial of his blood. And there was testimony at the trial about how there were, you know, eight milliliters. And, oh, you could only count for six. What happened to the miss? And plus, Van Adder, instead of uh, uh, giving the blood vial right. into the evidence chain immediately as he should have per protocol, he carried it around to the murder scene. So people thought, well, reasonable doubt. They sprinkled his blood here and there. My reaction to all this new bloody knife thing is, if... By chance, it is O.J.'s blood on the knife. That probably would put to rest the suspicion, because the idea that they not only sprinkled it in the Bronco, but also sprinkled it on a knife that was found buried 20 years later, maybe that would convince oh, people that, are that, you he, kidding? that he re they was really the, the right guy. Yeah, because I think otherwise people still cling, don't you think, Patrick, to the idea that, doggone it, there's a chance that O.J. was framed. Well, this is a huge sociological issue. There was this great divide in society in the, in the 1990s when this was going on. Those who believed LAPD and, and those who believed that, that O.J. Simpson was framed. And I don't know if any piece of evidence will ever change anybody's mind. And, in fact, you mentioned uh, Phil Van Adder, who was the co-lead investigator for LAPD, along with Tom Lang. We had a chance to speak to Tom Lang on Friday. And he said, you know, I've got doubts that this is the real knife. I, I, I don't think it, it will uh, turn out to be. But he says, you know, it doesn't really matter. We looked at this case so thoroughly, looked at so many other possible suspects, ruled them all out. Uh, we lost the trial, yes. And the case is technically still open, yes. But from an investigator's standpoint, there is no doubt 
O.J. Simpson committed these double murders. And, and in fact, well, just one more point I'll make real, real quickly. Uh, Tom Lang uh, believes very much that Simpson disposed of that knife along with the Bruno Molly shoes and some other evidence in a trash container at the airport and that uh, that that evidence long ago ended up in a landfill and will never be found. So Tom Lang, the detective, really does not expect that this Hmm. knife will ever be found. Well, it's given people a lot of stuff to think about and a lot of memories drifting back to the 90s. And as you say, I mean, it was a huge sociological divide. And I think it it demonstrates, if you're watching this FX movie, we were reminded of the fact that Marsha Clark kind of blew it. I mean, she thought, for example, that black women would be wonderful jurors because they would identify with a woman who had been beaten. And instead, when they heard Mark Furman with his you know, genocidal racist remarks from the stand, I think a lot of people on that jury, they, they just looked at O.J., and they looked at Mark Furman and they asked themselves, you know, who do I really believe? Who do I want having a smile at the end of this trial? And in their mind, it added up to reasonable doubt. It, it certainly did. And, you know, long term, the impact of that case on LAPD has been enormous. It was an impetus for LAPD to improve its crime lab, to, to set down definite procedures and gathering of evidence and analyzing evidence that it had to be followed, and it was a watershed moment for the LAPD, and it was very unpleasant at the time, but it has resulted in better criminal investigations since then. Last question for uh, you, Patrick Healy, NBC4 reporter. Impact on Simpson's situation, he's uh, sitting in state prison, up for parole October 2017. I guess if it turns out that it's his blood on the knife, that might pretty much seal the deal in terms of the Nevada folks saying you deserve to stay a little longer than 2017. <laughs> <laughs> Royal, I'm, I'm going to turn that question around back on you, though. Is that something that the parole board in Nevada would be entitled to consider? Yeah, they would, because they're entitled to look at his whole life, in terms, because he's going to be saying, you know, I'm a good guy, you know, that whole hotel thing. You know it was just a big do-over for the, for the 1990s deal, and for them to say, oh, well, it's come to our attention, Mr. Simpson, you're a double murderer, uh, and it isn't just the civil jury that feels that way. That, that would extend his stay in lovely Nevada, I think. Well, Royal, in case anything at all develops on this case in the knife, anything else related to Simpson, uh, may I suggest to your listeners the NBC4 app, the NBCLA.com website, <laughs> and, of course, the NBC4 News. Uh, well, we're morning, noon, evening, at 11 p.m. We'll have whatever developments there are. And don't forget the Twitter handle, at PatrickNBC4LA. Patrick Healy, NBC4 reporter, thank you so much for sharing part of this uh, wet Monday morning with us. Thank you so much. Anytime, Royal and Terry Ray. Take care. 922 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. When we come back, Mark Zuckerberg, the uh, titan of Facebook, very angry about the Black Lives Matter movement. Feels very strongly about it. Stay with us. 930 at the time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. This wet Monday morning. Hey, check out my website, royaloaks.com. It's R-O-Y-A-L-O-A-K-E-S.com. Got a new podcast up about the O.J. Simpson case, and timing is kind of good with the uh, mysterious bloody glove being added. Uh, Gives you kind of the whole overview, and of course, uh, get a little movie review on the FX Network 10-part series on O.J. Simpson continuing on through April. 
Hey, the uh, playoffs are in sight. The division-leading LA Kings are gunning for a third Stanley Cup in five years, and they take on Vancouver tonight at 7. Former King Daryl Evans and John Rosen describe all the action. That's Kings and Canucks tonight at 7 on the home of the Kings, 790 KABC. So we often hear about the excesses and the unfairness of landlords. Well, got an interesting twist on the landlord-tenant clash. And David Lazarus of the Los Angeles Times is here to explain it to us because David has written about uh, kind of an interesting eviction delay scheme. David, how are you doing this morning? I'm good, Royal. How are you doing? Doing great, doing great. A great article in the Times. And uh, my gosh, uh, who knew that uh, uh, the tenants were so sophisticated? Uh, Tell us what you've been digging up here. Well, and as you noted, typically when we talk about the the landlord-tenant relationship, it's scheming nasty venal landlords turning the screws on tenants, and there is no shortage of that. But when you look a little more closely at it, you see that the situation is more complex. And by that, I mean tenants who have learned how to game the eviction system to get extra months rent-free in people's homes. And in some cases, people here in the Southland who simply move from house to house running this racket again and again and enjoying rent-free stay in in homes that might rent for $4,000, $5,000 a month. And the way you do it is basically use all of the protections that were put into the system to protect tenants from unfair evictions and play a delaying game with this motion or that motion. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that once you get the hang of filing all the motions in the correct sequence, you can get up to seven months or more rent-free in somebody's house. Wow. And some of these companies, apparently, you were writing pretty brazen in their marketing with the number one eviction delay service and promising, as you say, up to seven months rent-free. But, I mean, it's so discouraging because it sounds like, you know, gaming the system and delay, what it really translates to is dishonesty. And if, if what they're doing is, is advocating or helping people basically file motions in court to slow things down and kind of exploiting the fact that we have a lot of court congestion now because the state doesn't give the, the courts enough money, I mean, aren't you talking about basically lawyers fraud. violating the law? Yeah, committing fraud. Is it, wouldn't this be like a state bar matter? Yeah, although hard to prove because is it a a legitimate challenge to an eviction or is it uh, a delaying tactic? That's where it becomes a a real difficult thing. And and as you noted, when I started looking into this thing, I I discovered that there's a whole cottage industry of law firms and companies that specialize in delaying evictions. Now, maybe in in some cases that's a good thing because someone is being unfairly tossed out on their keister, but in many cases it's just simply as we say, gaming the system. And, and the, what these companies do is for a flat fee, they will prepare the various motions that you need to slow the system down. And all you need to do is sign your name to them. And then these guys will submit it to the court. So after you are served with a, a summons that says you're being evicted, these guys will help you file a motion to quash, which can have the summons have to be reserved. And then once that happens, they can file a demur, which challenges the reasons for the eviction. Eviction and again starts the the process over from scratch. Then there's all sorts of other ways you can do it, which motions for additional information, motions for special circumstance, motion for bankruptcy, or even a motion to move the the case into federal court. All of these things are intended simply to gum up the works. It's not as though you're necessarily going to be able to overturn a legitimate infection, but you are going to be able to slow it down and slow it down. And since the column was published, I've talked to dozens of landlords who say 
This has happened to me again and again. And these aren't big slumlord landlords who own lots of apartment buildings. These are, you know, smaller guys who basically own some investment properties on the side that they are using to bring in some income. And that's why I think that this is something that lawmakers need to step up about. Because if this were just simply one of those examples of the big guys um, throwing their weight around, that's one thing. But it turns out that many of these landlords are, are just simply folks trying to make ends meet as well. We're talking to David Lazarus, LA Times business columnist. His Twitter handle is at David Laz, L-A-Z. Yeah, I mean, and that's a good point you make because, yeah, there are a bunch of real estate conglomerates out there, and they're going to be fine. They can absorb this. But there are a lot of folks who are going to be driven into personal bankruptcy and maybe have their home or, or, real, or apartment house foreclosed because, I mean, some of these people you were reporting, they just move house to house. They go two, three, four months here, just don't pay, and then you know, file file the frivolous actions, and they move on to the next one. And, you know, you can do that indefinitely, I guess, if, if this strategy really works. It sure seems that way. And again, it, it's important to emphasize that these rules are in place to protect tenants, and the rules are very well intended. It's just no one anticipated the idea that someone who is savvy about the system or a firm that, that could lend its savviness to, to those willing to pay a price would be able to throw a monkey in the wrench and, and just slow things down to the point where everything is going at a crawl. And, and that's where it's clear the system needs to be revamped a bit so that some of these delaying tactics can be you know, accelerated, first of all, and that the, the, there's ways to also protect landlords. And I never thought I'd be here on the radio with you talking about protecting landlords. <laughs> but but you know, it, it's interesting, after talking, to, I talked to one guy who basically has rental properties, and he told me, look, I, I've got to pay my mortgages as well. I've got to pay my insurance. And on top of that, I've got a kid with a brain tumor who I'm trying to to help with his health care. And now I've got tenants who are trying to stay put in my property in Calabasas that should be renting for over $5,000 a month. It, it clearly says that the, the situation isn't completely black and white when it comes to tenants and landlords. There's a lot of shades of gray here, and there's a system that seems to be clearly out of whack. Absolutely. All right, David Lazarus, LA Times business columnist. Thanks for uh, sharing your thoughts. You have a great day. You too, Royal. Take care. 945 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. When we come back, presidential election, the smackdown in Flint, and are the Republicans headed for a brokered convention? Stay tuned. Yeah, let's find out how the roads are looking with Bill Thomas. 950 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC, the place Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this Monday morning. This is an historic election year. Your vote will have a huge impact. Count on us to deliver Southern California's most insightful, authentic, entertaining election coverage all the way to November. News Talk Evolved, 790 KABC. So this this Trump-Teflon phenomenon, T-Ray, I mean, it doesn't matter who he ticks off, who he insults. Nope. Uh, it just, it all seems to go wash off his back. Saturday Night Live, though, I mean, they were after him. Let's listen to how they handled the whole Trump Christie thing and see, see if this might make some inroads. Everyone loves me. I even got this fat piece of crap behind me now. <laughs> Isn't that right, Chris? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Please, sir, may I have another? <laughs> I mean, he really is a sad, desperate little potato back there, aren't you, Chris? Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Please, sir, may I have another? <laughs> also, P.S. America, I have a great, big, huge... Yeah. 
and the satire, I mean, he's pretty close to reality. You know, in, in terms of people's reaction, I think part of it is that folks talk that way among themselves, mm-hmm. behind closed doors. So we've come to think, you know, well, why shouldn't our presidential uh, candidate uh, be that way as well? I, uh, I disagree. I, well, you know. He keeps saying he's going to get presidential, and, and, and so my question is when? He yeah. could be so presidential, T-Reg. Yeah, Just wait. <laughs> well, one guy who's yeah. trying to stop him is our friend Mitt Romney. Let's listen to what Mitt said. If the other candidates can find some common ground, I believe we can nominate a person who can win the general election and who will represent the values and policies of conservatism. Given the current delegate selection process, that means that I'd vote for Marco Rubio in Florida and for John Kasich in Ohio and for Ted Cruz or whichever one of the other two contenders has the best chance of beating Mr. Trump in a given state. T. Ray, I don't see people beating a path to Mitt Romney. Do you? Did I miss that over the last three or four days? No, and he actually, I think it was on Fox News Sunday, too, or one of the other shows, he said that he definitely wasn't running. Um, But the other thing I wanted to tell you is the Bernie Sanders thing we were talking about earlier this morning. You and I, the quote, when you're white, you don't know what it's like to be living in a ghetto. You don't know what it's like to be poor. Where does the word ghetto come from? Didn't he go off for, you know, 15 minutes on being a Jew Absolutely. and losing his Polish family? ghettos. Uh, you're right. I think that, that showed a lot of insensitivity for Sanders to say, you know, white people don't know what it's like to be it's, poor. Yeah, so there's, poor. Two, there's two controversies in that statement. They the, both answered that question really weird, though. It was a bizarre question. It's, you know, like, how do you see in your own life where you've been kind of racist? They literally, they quoted yeah. Avenue Q. Everyone's a little bit racist <laughs> sometimes. No, no, you're right. But, you know, and it's getting a little ugly between Hillary and, uh, mm-hmm. and Bernie. Let's listen to part of the smackdown i said let the billionaires themselves bail out wall street shouldn't be the middle class of this country okay wait a minute wait can i finish you'll have your turn you'll have your turn hillary (laughs) finally standing up to her so it's it's going to get even uglier than it has been 953 time here on talk radio 790 kabc momentarily the man is going to be here peter tilden give you a little head heads up as to what's on his show so stay tuned here on kabc